Hey, you are listening to BTS Podcast. This is your host, Lene Cook. BTS Podcast is where I talk to people about the behind the scenes of what they do and final products. This episode's guest is Erica Dahlia Masakoy. She is a curator, educator, and entrepreneur. Her multi-brand, The Ula Company, sources textiles from emergent markets with the aim of creating cultural exchange, economic development, and influential global design. Erica's curatorial work includes shows for the Fry Art Museum, the Seattle Art Museum, the MIT List Visual Arts Center, and the Studio Museum in Harlem. She has held curatorial positions at the Whitney Museum of American Art and the Museum of the Moving Image. She has also taught new media, cinema, and contemporary art classes at Yale, NYU, and the New School for Research. She's served as the Assistant Dean of the School of Art and Design at FIT. So after recording this episode, Erica sent me a really beautiful write-up about sort of just her why, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, and it's so gorgeous that I didn't want to paraphrase it because it just wouldn't do it justice. So I'm just going to read it from my phone out loud right now. Erica said, I love wearing Ula, which is her company that I've mentioned previously, because when I do, I affirm my cultural identity. Ula is for everyone, and I'm elated when diverse customers affirm African and African diaspora beauty through their dress. What delights me is that Ula fashion puts a smile on people's faces. Ula invokes joy, particularly black joy. When I post a picture of myself and my daughter traipsing around happily in our Ula, I am super aware that I am creating black joy and it gives me acute pleasure, so much so that it's almost hard to put in words. The pictures speak for themselves. There is so much conversation about fashion and sustainability, and I address it twofold. We produce in the USA because I believe benefaction begins at home, and master sewers in the US need the work, and it's important for me to do my part to sustain economic growth in the fashion industry, particularly for artisans of color. In terms of environmental sustainability, if you must have beautiful dresses, and let's face it, most women, including myself, just simply must, then let's concurrently maintain ecological and cultural balance by creating garments with cultural significance. So as you can see, there is no way that I would ever change any of that or put it in sort of like a third person voice to describe what she said. So I think that along with sort of my download on what Erica does and her background and with her perspective, that shares a pretty solid intro to who she is. So I am thrilled to share this episode with you. You'll learn a lot about Erica, how we met, how uh, sort of like my respect for her preceded her. And um, had I known she was the same person who curated one of my favorite art shows that I've ever been to, I probably would have been too nervous to reach out at all. So um, that just goes to show you uh, that fear is no good. So anyways, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to support this podcast, please do subscribe, rate, and review. You can find BTS Podcast across podcast listening apps. Um, obviously, you found it on whatever app you're listening through right now. I'm a huge fan of Breaker. You can find me on Breaker, and you can also see like what other podcasts I'm on. You can see what I'm following. There's a lot of really great podcasts out there. So if you're looking for more podcasts, feel free to find me and just lurk the podcasts that I'm following on Breaker. Other ways you can support this podcast include going to anchor.fm slash BTS Podcast, and you can become a monthly like sponsor or contributor, whatever they call it on there. That would be great. Um, I got my first one uh, not too long ago and I really appreciate it. Shout out to Camillo. You can also use my promo codes across some of my favorite services. So these are not like the top services you hear across a lot of different podcasts. So please do listen up. 
I am a huge fan of Soothe, which provides in-home massages. You can use code LZLRZ to save on your first massage. I'm also a huge fan of Hotel Tonight. You can book really gorgeous hotels at discounted rates around the world and their point system unlocks more discounts for you. You can use LCOOK61 to save on that. And I'm a big fan of Breather. Breather is how I often record this podcast. You can book a breather room, which just means a meeting room for short-term or long-term usage. Just use code Linay, L-Y-N-A-E, to save on your first booking. They're really great. They literally provide uh, meeting rooms and sort of office space around the country. And you can do it in like two-hour chunks, or you can rent it out for a month or whatever. It's a really great solution for when you're traveling, or maybe you have a short-term project that you just want some meeting space for a group on. It is wonderful and a great alternate to clogging up a coffee shop. So anyways, enjoy this episode. Thank you for listening. Erica's amazing. I'm thrilled to share this. Hi, you are listening to BTS Podcast. This is your host, Lene Cook, and I am thrilled to have on Erica Dahlia Masakoy today. She is, oh my goodness, I don't even know where to start. She is a curator mm-hmm. and she has just like a really incredible understanding and like incredible education behind um, her curatorial work and culturally. And I, there's like, I don't even know where to begin because her LinkedIn was so, I like took so many notes. Usually I have like three or four bullets for people. And this time it's like, oh my gosh. And that too. And that too. So she is a consultant curator for Seattle Art Museum. And she is also on the board of directors for Seattle Arts and Lectures. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 And you have a company, Mm -hmm. um, a clothing company that makes beautiful clothing. Thank you. The Ula Company. And then she also has a significant amount of experience as an educator in addition to what you do as a curator. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So let's start off, I think, perhaps... Actually, let's start off with how would you define um, your... How would you define being a curator? A curator? I mean, that's interesting um, because I always thought of myself as a hybrid. Um, And it's funny. I look at my career and I planned some of it, but most of it I didn't. (laughs) For me, ever since I was young, I'd always been interested in art and design. I just came out knowing (laughs) that I would do something interesting in art and design and I really didn't have a path for me. It was about what can I explore within the creative field that will help me grow and that will challenge me and that will pull me. So I think it's my curiosity and my passion that has really driven the course of my career. And it's interesting, one of my friends just started calling me an artist. You know how people introduce people to other people? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, and we, I mean, we can get back to this later in the conversation, but I'd never thought of myself as an artist you know when people ask you what you are like Mm -hmm. at a dinner party she says oh Erica's an artist (laughs) and now my husband has lately has started calling me an artist and I really do think it's because I'm making things now Mm -hmm. you know it's interesting but I felt like when I was a curator I was an artist you know it was a different it was just a different type of practice yeah (laughs) um so I think it's useful just to begin at the beginning um I grew up in Miami, Florida, in Liberty City, and I had the best parents that I would just describe as being totally supportive of my creativity from a very, very young age. I was very self-driven. 
Um, so if I wanted to take a dance class or a ceramics class um, or a theater class, they would just let me do it. Wow. <laughs> so it really started with that. Um, and I also remember being very interested in fashion at a very young age. I had an aunt who was extremely fashionable in the 70s. Um, and we lived a very, my mother created a very beautiful and happy lifestyle. You know, so I always remember like yummy food cooking and like really cool records playing on the radio. And I also had the privilege of growing up in a very religious household when I was two my father converted from Catholicism to Islam. Mm-hmm. So I was really, I grew up in a space where, you know, black is beautiful, buy black, you are strong, you are creative. All of my cultural exuberance and my pride in who I am comes from that, you know, African-American Islamic community that I grew up in. Um, And so I was always surrounded by a community that was lifting me up in regards to whatever it was I wanted to practice. And I was a creative, so, you know, why not, why not do that? Um, And literally, I remember auditioning for performing arts school, and I was in the ninth grade. And at that point, I thought that I wanted to be an actor. I mean, I thought of myself as a creative and an actor. So clearly one went to performing arts school. Mm -hmm. So I told my mom, I think I want to go to art school. I want to audition for New World School of the Arts. They were like all excited, helping me prep for my audition. And when I got in, it was like, oh, yeah, Erica's like an artist and a public speaker. And I was a theater major. So then I defined myself at that point. Well, clearly I'm a thespian as well mm-hmm. as a fashion person. Wait, what were you speaking about publicly in the ninth grade? Well, you know, you do public speaking. So okay. they would have in school um, and also at my mosque, we would have these competitions, you know, know. and you would just practice your public speaking. That's so cool. You know, you talk about, I don't know, politics or um, some type of activist impulse that Mm -hmm. was, you know, important to you at the time. But I remember doing these often, Okay. you know, getting up on the stage and like having to memorize and having to speak. And I was very, very, when I was young, I was very shy and introverted. I mean, you always found me with a book and then something shifted when I went from elementary school to junior high school, I just remember things like shifting where me really having a sense of who I was and a sense of self um, and also the confidence that comes with it as a tween, mm-hmm. <laughs> as they call them now. So, um, yeah, I was, you know, I did everything. I'd always been a hybrid. I wasn't just going to do like one thing. Right. And it's funny. I had a teacher she was so accusatory. It was like, Erica, you know, you just can't be a jack of all trades. But now in this culture, of course, that's what you are. I mean, I have like a t- the t-shirt that says Jane of all trades. That's perfect. Because that's what I am. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've always been. And when I do take on, you know, a new interest, a new project, it's really important to me to do it well, mm-hmm. you know, to be rigorous in my approach to my work. Um, because it's not easy being a hybrid, (laughs) you know what I mean? Particularly when you're thinking about the depth and breadth of information one has to retrieve and then see through your own lived experience and then put back out into the world. So 
I'm really passionate about bringing that sort of rigor to my work. Um, and I think that that's what has propelled me. You know, the rigor is propelled by the creativity, you know, and the curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so that, I think, for me, always makes an interesting project product. And it also feeds me, you know, mm-hmm. as a creative. So, yeah, I was like the president of my class and the co-editor of the newspaper, just like one of those people mm-hmm. who... You know, all the I got I would get on one side the award for most likely to succeed, and then the other side it was like best dress. <laughs> That's so great. It's really funny at this point, and it, but that was just who I was. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and you know, so I go to high school. I'm a theater major. Then I began writing, um, and writing creatively, and really, really enjoying performing, but also enjoying what it meant to be to be a playwright. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was excelling at that. So when it was time for me to go to college, I really thought that I wanted to be in New York. Not thought. I was like, oh, I want to be in New York so bad. And I applied to NYU and I got in. And of course, there was like no money to attend NYU. And then I also applied to a lot of liberal arts colleges as well. And so um, I ended up attending the University of Chicago, which was, of course, the absolute right path for me in retrospect. I did not belong in New York <laughs> at the age of 18. It was I needed to go, you know, through this path at Chicago. Um, and it was the dean of the theater department when I was trying to make a decision about, you know, what college to attend, who was like, well, if you want to be a playwright, Erica, you need to learn about the human condition. And the only place where you can really, really understand that is at the University of Chicago. <laughs> so it's interesting. I decided to go there and it really changed my life. Um because we worked all the time. (laughs) We slept in the library. Um, It was such an academic culture. Uh And I was like a sponge taking in water. I mean. God, what a dream. It was like, I mean, for me, it's like you, I look back in retrospect and I almost feel like, you know, you always do this. I mean, you wish you would have been more present in that moment. Yeah. And that's what I'm always telling, you know, young students, young artists, even my daughter. Like, it's really important when you're having these big experiences to try to be present in it. Because for me, it was a big deal, a girl coming from Liberty City, you know, and then going to University of Chicago. Like, I could not fail. You know, my parents hadn't had the opportunity to go to college. I was always considered like, you know, the smartest one in the family. And unbeknownst to me, I was carrying that weight, Mm -hmm. you know, to do Mm -hmm. my family proud. But I also wanted to do right by myself as well. So I had a lot of experiences that I just moved through them without fully taking in what was happening to me at the time. Um, So what I learned from the University of Chicago, I was a history major. um, And then I also got a master's there in social sciences. Mm -hmm. um, And I was really interested about learning about people and learning about the human condition and studying everything from like, you know, anthropology, you know, to filmmaking. Um, And once I discovered filmmaking as a narrative tool, that took my career in a totally different direction. Um, I began curating film programs. At the time, I didn't really understand what a curator was. Mm -hmm. You know, I went to a performing arts school, so everybody was a dancer, an artist, a singer. Um, I didn't know any curators when I was young. Of course, we went to museums, but, you know, it was nothing I ever thought of as a path. So I literally fell into it. I would program film 
retrospectives and I began writing about them. Um, and because my parents were so open, I'd seen so much um, cinema when I was young. My mother would let me stay up on weeknights to watch like film noir. That's amazing. That would become on the public access channel. I got away with a lot because I was a good kid and a good student. Right. <laughs> so, and I had three other siblings. As long as I got straight A's and made her proud and made her look good, I got a lot of flexibility in return for that. That was our unspoken, you know, yeah, agreement. That was a form of currency. That was a form of currency. So that worked really well for me. So I remember like, you know, oh my God, watching all manner of cinema and, you know, when I started dating, you know, having <laughs> these silly boyfriends, they like, Erica, what do you want to do? And I'd be like, well, I, I want to go see the Josephine Baker Princess Tam Tam film. <laughs> I mean, they were like, what? You know, so. Typically because, not the way to a man's heart. I know, not the way to a man's heart. And all these guys with braces on their bangs. I mean, I think about it now and it's just, oh my God, what we do in our youth. But it was interesting because even at that time I was a hybrid. And I was exposing the people around me to like new and different things. And so by the time I started curating cinema, I'd seen so much of it. My first job at the University of Chicago was working at the documentary film group as a film projectionist. That's so and funny. that was like so amazing because like how many people now who are really studying, you know, media actually get to like handle, you know, right. celluloid. Yeah. So that was super amazing. I remember the first film that I projected was Viva Las Vegas. And it was so campy. I love that film and, you know, Elvis. And I was just having so much fun with it. I mean, I watched these films and I know all the songs and my fellow um, friends at the documentary film group, you know, we were all like film geeks mm -hmm. before I even knew what that was. Right. Like I didn't name myself that. It was, I was that girl who just liked these fun films. Um, and cool films. So I did that for a while and I began writing about cinema. And when it was time for me to graduate from college, again, because I was a hybrid, I could have taken many paths. So I was like, oh, let me apply to like cinema PhD programs because it was the mid 90s and independent black cinema was like everything. Mm -hmm. um, and I curated so much of it, particularly emergent filmmakers, experimental filmmakers. So there was that path. Mm -hmm. um, I was still a bookworm. You know, my other job in college was working um, at a bookstore. And still to this day, I think like my first creative thing was like as a reader, you know. Yeah. So um, I and I'd also like been a journalist as well. So I could have taken like, you know, the journalist route. And I remember right after college for the summer, attending the Radcliffe Publishing course, um, which is now at Columbia University. And they prepare you for book publishing as well as magazine publishing. So I could have taken that route because mm -hmm. clearly I was going to get to New York somehow through film or through publishing. <laughs> and then I was also acting when I was in college um, and becoming really good, you know, finding my, my voice as an actress. So then I was applying to acting MFA programs as well. Wow. So I would sit in my dorm room like, which road to take, like what to do, what to do. So, when you're a curious person who yeah. also has sort of a breadth of experience in a lot of different places, and mm -hmm. you can fantasize a future with any of those options. Like to this day, if I, it is, I could spend a day going through like a college course guide and just being like, oh, I could do that. Yeah. Like <laughs> let's play the road not taken. You know, where would it, 
Right. You know, where would it lead? But I would have been happy with any of those paths, you mm-hmm. know. Um, you know, but to my mentors, they were like, why can't she choose one thing? And that was just never who I was ever going to be. And that's a really hard thing for some people. I yeah. Think some people, which, you know, I think the world needs both types. Yeah. Like, I would not, you know, want a brain surgeon who's operating on me and then stops to write a poem. I know, right? <laughs> you know, but they exist. They're out there. Right. They're there. They're but. there. I know. So that's the thing. People aren't, you know, my mentors, some of them weren't comfortable with it. You know, then I had some people were like, well, whatever you decide to do, you know, you're going to be good at it. So do it. So right. I thought. How, wait, how did you have mentors at that age? Because that's interesting. Oh, I had great mentors at that age. Because I would just, whenever I need it, and I think that this has been something that's really important to me. If I don't know how to do something or I need help, I just like go to someone and ask for help. Right. You know, this was like pre-internet days. So if I wanted to do something, I would like write a letter. You know, I want to do this internship. You know, I'm looking for a mentor to help me with this. And, you know, people are really generous when you reach out to them. Totally. You know, still to this day. I am not shy. If I need help and I want to do something, I just pick up, you know, the phone or I email and I get it. So that's how I got all these mentors, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were like, well, you'll be great at anything you do. So I decided I was recruited essentially to for NYU. Oh, wow. That's Um, incredible. It was just so exciting. I mean, I was, you know, I remember writing an essay like on the history of blackness and film noir, you know, something really heavy and yeah. deep. And I remember people were like, oh, this is great. You should you should come come here. And I'll never forget, my BA reader was Elizabeth Alexander. I remember when Obama became president, she wrote, this is, this is hilarious for people to see because we're going to talk about motherhood in a second. So my <laughs> daughter doesn't want to interrupt. So she writes me a note. Did you talk about me? I haven't talked about you yet. Oh, man. But I'm talking about you now. Right. You will be mentioned. Way to manifest your... The way she wrote it. Lupa, that's great. That's That's great. I will talk about you. You don't have... You will be mentioned, Luba. In fact, I'll mention it to you now. She's like, well, what are you going to mention about me, mommy? I'm like, well, I'm going to talk about how your vivaciousness and your creativity and love for life really um, inspires me as a mother and as an artist um, and influences my sense of freedom, particularly when it comes to um, the trajectory of my company. Um, You know, because I'm at that point where you start thinking about like your legacy, Right. And Luba's old enough. I mean, these kids, I mean, I didn't know who I was until I was 13. Luba, like, knows who she is today. <laughs> and I'll have, I'll have listeners know that Luba is sitting here proudly uh, Luba's smiling. Luba's sitting here proudly. Luba's only absorbing eight. Absorbing all of But anybody who has an eight-year-old today, they're, I'm like, these newfangled kids, like, they know who they are. I just... Isn't it amazing? It's amazing. And her vocabulary, I mean, the nuance with which she mm-hmm. thinks... I'm very impressed by it, I have to say. Don't you think your parents felt the same way about you? Um, Because I imagine, like, if they're letting you, if you're expressing interest in all those things at such a young age, certainly your parents, like, that's why they encouraged that with you, because they were like, oh, she knows what she wants. That's true. She's not just here floundering, like, scrolling to see what's, or, like, you know, scrolling through channels to see what's available. Like, you're, you know, I was very self-directed, like, 
it's interesting. I have friends who made every decision with their parents. Like they sat down, they thought about it, mm-hmm. they talked it through. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't know what that feels no, like. Me, I've never, I don't think I've ever made a decision with anyone in my life. Yeah. I've always said, you know, and they would, I would say, this is what I want to do. And then it would, they'd be interested in it. I mean, right. I remember my mom, like, you know, at that point I had one of those digital typewriters typing up my college things. I would write it longhand and then she would type it up. She'd make sure it got to FedEx. I mean, wow, what a good you mom. know, she, you my did, mom was like awesome. Parents. Yeah. My parents like were so awesome. My dad would, you know, he was, he really would have been, I think if he would have had the opportunity, one of these people who would have thrived in academia, um, doing like, comparative religious study <laughs> that would have been his degree well yeah you know I mean, he basically has a degree in it yeah he converted especially later on in life he like, converted later on in life and then he would still study the bible next to the quran right next to the torah this is what he would do as his hobby you know in his free That's time amazing. he would be like reading and studying um he had older friends who were masons so he he would study that as well so and he had mentors. He had, uh-huh. like, religious mentors. And I also said, I was like, you know, I remember, like, during the month of Ramadan, going with my dad to visit one of his friends, you know, and them talking about, like, Islam. And I was like, you know, I wish I had now. I need a guru. Like, that's, right. <laughs> that's what I want. I mean, <laughs> like, a spiritual, like, yeah. you know, people make fun of it. But, I mean, in some cases, it's just a mentor. Someone to discuss, you know, your interests in and your path with your existential crisis. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It is. It is something that's fascinating. And so I I actually wonder, too, Mm -hmm. because because your parents were so supportive. Yeah. And they also had their own interests and they were Mm -hmm. very supportive of what you wanted. Mm -hmm. They did you like you're it's you're obviously definitely fortunate in that way, but Mm -hmm. also like. The amount of um, sort of time you were spared in like mm. wondering all the ego stuff and the fear that people have around things that when yeah. your parents encourage that in you to go like oh just try this yeah that you don't have that pressure built up of like oh I need to be good at it like you you have that curiosity of like oh I'm interested in learning yeah versus the terror that it is that like you have struck you in your tr- heart and I have I have what I would call stage fright. With anything. Okay. But that's different from fear. And that's normal. And that's normal. The yeah. Stage fright is almost like the, it's like the excitement. Yeah. You know what I mean? Of, of exploring. It's the anticipation. And the almost. anticipation like an of like bearing yourself, you know, totally. and proving to yourself that you can do something. Absolutely. Yeah. I had one of my cousins, I've, I've also suffered from stage fright and I think I have some sort of like thing in me that, uh, mm. is like a little bit, um, I don't know, some sort of. I get a rush out of just leaning into it. Yeah, yeah. And so all purposely, like when people talk about how they didn't do something because they were scared of it, Mm -hmm. it never occurred to me to just cancel. You know what I mean? It never occurred to me to back out. I would for sure hope that I got in a car accident on the way and didn't have to do it. Yeah, yeah. But in my head, if I said I was going to do it, I was going to do it. So I think it's really interesting when people back out of situations like that. But I think also like what a sort of like jump ahead and leap ahead you had in things if you were able... I to was, only have the normal anxieties I, and not, like, the fear of just not being good at something. I had the normal anxieties, and also I was never discouraged. Right. I mean, you know, I look back now, I had, it is not easy being a creative in this world. Mm-mm. Like, you don't, you only choose to do it because you love it. 
it's out of the compulsion. It's out of compulsion. It's who you are. It's like you have to. Yeah. Um, it really is. It's like you know, I I have to. That's my contribution to the world. I don't know what else I would be doing. So. Um, it was never like a question for me. And even during those really lean years when my back was against the wall and I was living on the edge in New York and struggling, I mean, not all those years were easy, particularly mm-hmm. when you're trying to work full-time jobs and also, you know, cram out a dissertation and there are all of these distractions, right. <laughs> you know, around you in New York City. Well, yeah, because there's fun to be had. You're still a young person. You're still a young person and there's still fun to be had and you know, I was doing, I went to New York and I did what I was supposed to do. So they came, they recruited me. I said, yeah, I'm going to commit to this. But it's interesting within the first semester of my PhD program, I was so bored because as an undergrad, I just think that the regular of the undergraduate curriculum at the University of Chicago, it was like a grad school curriculum. Grad school was easy. I was like, this is it? Like, they've got to be kidding. Like, (laughs) I was like, I remember I had a job in two seconds and I, let's get out here. Let's hustle. You know, we're in New York and I'll never forget when I, I came home, what did I do? So I graduated, I did the Radcliffe thing thinking that if it really catches me, then I'll like go into book publishing or do some fashion magazine thing. And I had a great time in Radcliffe, but then I was like, "Mm, I don't know. I feel like doing a PhD is something if you have the opportunity to do it and the right. support especially you should if you've do been it recruited. and you and also the research that I was going to do it was important stories mm-hmm. to tell that needed to be told yeah. and having been a student for so long you know you think about how many stories are untold and how stories that are told need to be reframed yes. <laughs> and reformulated and I knew that that was important work you know, so I just sort of defined my priorities right? Um, as such. And I remember I was so excited to go to New York. I'll never forget the day that I'm like all packed up. And my father, he used to be, he was a bag um, handler at Eastern Airlines before okay. it went under. So, uh-huh. th- you know, these are the days that, you know, we knew everybody at the airport. And I remember taking so much crap with me to New York. I mean, we can't travel like that today. <laughs> They were just like, oh, Erica, you're going to New York. Like, everyone was so excited That's for me. beautiful. I remember I had, like, bags of stuff and my dad dropping me off. And, you know, when you get out and they check your bags, I remember them pulling out the cart with all my stuff not charging us extra for bag because oh, baby so girl was like going to like New York and my dad was like oh my and he'd been to New York like one or two times he and my mom actually were went to New York for their um for their honeymoon mm-hmm. so you know he would tell me these stories you know um and I would be like I'm gonna be like a big deal when I go to New York but more than that I never felt so at home you know how some people like are scared. I was so excited on that plane. And I remember it landed. I was like, finally here. And I immediately knew what to do. I knew how to get a cab. Mm -hmm. I remember my dorm was like off the corner of Bleecker and Broadway. I I was in the middle of everything. I dropped those bags. I was out on the street. (laughs) I, I remember going into like the little bodega pulling me together some lunch and sitting there like I've arrived and I was like so I just knew exactly what to do I was not afraid I just sort of like fell into it 
And so once school started, I was just like, there's more to New York because I've seen it in the movies. <laughs> All those movies I watched, of course, you know, then just like writing. So I went out and got a job. Um, and I was like an assistant curator at the Museum of the Moving Image. And that was great. That's Because I would work during the day yeah. and I would go to school at night. And I was young then. You have a paper. You just write all night. Yeah. Um, and I and once I became a cinema student, I also realized that I had another really important tool because I'd made experimental films, Super 8 films, and video. I was really a practitioner. Mm-hmm. And when you bring the knowledge of making things to the theoretical practice, it gave me a unique voice. Right. Um, so... I mean, I did well in, in grad school. And to this day, I'm sure my advisors are, like, devastated that I didn't choose that path for myself. Which path is that? What do you mean by like that? A, like a, just a sort of, you know, um, traditional academic path. Okay. You know, of, of, you know, writing and teaching. Yeah. But again, <laughs> having done that through my academic career as a student, and having worked, I realized that there was a disconnect, right? And there was a disconnect between what I was learning in, in school and mm-hmm. what I was doing in my work. And then there was also the question of audience. Like, you know, so we're working in cinema. I mean, after the Museum of the Moving Image, I went to work at the Whitney Museum, which was like super awesome because, yeah. you know, my background wasn't in art history. So I really learned about contemporary art, like on the job. But I bought that unique perspective of studying, you know, cinema as well as new media. Um, I was taking like a lot of um, classes in interactive telecommunications program at NYU. And so I was really interested in like, you know, all the cinema and this new media and how interactivity is going to be like so cool and futurism. So that gave me an interesting perspective as a curator. But then, of course, as a curator... You know, they're like, well, you're going to have to leave your Ph.D. program at some point. But I'm like, no, I didn't I didn't want to be ABD, you know. So I ended up leaving the Whitney so that I could finish my dissertation. I remember for a year just sitting there cramming it out because it was important for me to finish what I started. And my Ph.D. um, dealt with the history of multicultural media art from 1950 to 2000, because at that point, like mid 90s early 2000s, there weren't a lot of people who were studying multicultural media, particularly experimental media. Mm -hmm. And so I became the girl that people would just send their work to. Like, oh, oh, there's this young scholar who's writing about, like, black experimental cinema in the 70s. And so, you know, these people would send their work to me. And it was, like, amazing. You know, you're connecting the dots. And people who were in the late 60s and 70s who were doing, like, amazing performance art pieces. You know, what they used to call video art now. Right. You know, so there was this true cornucopia of work that had never been written about. You know, I would go to my experimental media classes and my documentary cinema classes. And their work was not on the syllabi. It was not on the curriculum. It was not part of the instruction. So it was important for me to legitimize their work. Absolutely. And I did. And so I wrote the dissertation. I did a huge curatorial project. Um, and it went to MIT, the Studio Museum in Harlem. I mean, it was like a big time. But also, of course, I'm always, you know, having multiple side hustles at the time. Right. So at that time, I was like, well, I really want to relate to a larger audience um, 
because working in the bubble of contemporary art, I mean, you know, you're writing for your peers. You are writing for a public audience, but that audience is limited. Right. I mean, it is. Well, it's important it has work, everything to do with also who is then writing about your writing. Who's writing about your writing or, or even who's going to see your work at the museum. Yeah. And you who know? knows about those museums, and right? Who, yeah. Because that is really, I mean, when people typically go to New York, yeah. like a lot of people, and it's fascinating because, because I, I have a sort of a wide array of friends and relationships across different sort of like pockets of culture. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting, mm-hmm. like the group that goes and only knows about MoMA yeah. versus the group that goes and then knows about, like that they're like, oh, MoMA's fine. I really want to go to PS1 and I want to I go, want to, go to, to the this. Yeah, and I want to go to New Museum and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And so it really, and it's, it's amazing because growing up in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. like, I mean, luckily for me, my dad was, is into art. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, funny enough, my mom was an art major, but she like just didn't really want to go. I think you know she was busy being a mom and she was tired, and I think her heart was a little bit broken about mm-hmm. not doing art. Yeah, you know. So yeah. I think it was hard for her sometimes mm-hmm. to go, especially when she goes sometimes and she's like, "Yeah, I could do that." Yeah. <laughs> so I think from a yeah. pride perspective, it's difficult for her. Yeah. But luckily, my dad would take me to like Mocha, which most kids would just you know get to go to like. The Getty, which yeah. is lovely. It's but lovely, but yeah. Not, you're not really, you can see that same stuff yeah. online. Yeah. You know, versus yeah. Mocha is like an experience, right? Yeah. And then even now with, um, like they have the underground museum there and they have the Broad there. Yeah. Which. The Broad like, is everything. The Broad is great. And yeah. like LACMA's, at least, and maybe I'm getting older, so mm. I have a different perspective, but like LACMA's curation is so much different now than it used to the, be. Yeah. And, um. So I was really lucky, but it, it is, you do realize the more you start to learn about different galleries, different museums and stuff like that, you do start to realize how much of that is segmented in the population. Yeah. And you're like, oh, this is really preaching to the choir. Yeah. Like. That's a great way to put it. I felt like I was preaching to the choir. It was an awesome choir. I love singing with the choir. Right. Still to this day, I do, but I don't know. I feel like there's a large world out there and. Even as a curator, like, I want it to be fed in new ways. Right. You know, in terms of, like, finding work um, and thinking about how to write about work. Mm -hmm. And even when I was writing my dissertation, in all my practice, I think, and I was explaining this yesterday, I'm working on a fun project with the Gates Foundation um, of all places. And I said, you know, this is how I'm going to approach this. And this is almost the way that I approach everything. And I sort of didn't fully realize it, even though I've written about it. You know, I'm still having like epiphanies at the age of 47. Uh I said, I'm going to think about the breadth and depth of the history and knowledge of, you know, these textiles we have here. Um, And then I'm going to think about how they're used in real life, you know, and our lived experience every day. Mm -hmm. You know, so we can see how they're used in our like urban, you know, lived experiences every day. I said, and then I'm going to think about, you know, a futurist aspect of it, you know, um, how technology is transforming textile making, um, how AI is transforming the way that we, you know, interact, you know, with actual product and things. And they were just like looking at me, understanding it. Right. But I realized, oh my goodness, like I have like a specific creative like point of view that goes from like, you know, the documentary to like what I call cut and mix, you know, urbanality, 
um, sensibilities, um, cosmopolitan sensibilities, and that meld with, you know, what does this mean for the future and futurism and futurist practices. And that's the way that I put like everything together. Yeah, that's your lens. That's my lens. Exactly. Yeah. From like my home, you know what I mean? Yeah. To like my current business. And so it's really nice to, to um, be settled in that in such mm -hmm. a strong way, you know, mm -hmm. at this age, because I don't know if I was always so aware of it. You know, I felt like, oh, I wrote about that. It's been, I don't know, like 20 years ago now. Mm -hmm. But I feel like my practice and my sensibilities, like the times have finally caught up with it. So, well, it's, also, it's interesting. Yeah. And it's also like we, we develop language to describe what's already happening. Exactly. So when mm. that's like a sort of like, I don't know, in evolution and you're still, because when you're the person that you're developing the language to describe, uh, it's a yeah. very different thing than when you have peers to bounce it off of. Right. Like, yeah. And I just think about, and I've talked about this definitely, well, presumably on other episodes, mm -hmm. just about how I think with um, the quickness of communication now with Twitter and everything, yeah. we're able to develop language a lot quicker and across mm. sort of like... Platforms. Yeah, yeah, across platforms and like mm. in a broader way yeah. than before when it was like, oh, this word would get coined here. Oh my God, it was of... totally get coined and bogged down. And then you'd right. have to write like, <laughs> what is it called? You'd have... What, oh my God, I love this because my professor, he was so accusatory and I loved him for it. He would call them neologisms. Erica, you're always making up words. Well, you have to. I'm like, because there's no words to describe this yet. There's no other word. I know, exactly. Like, what are you supposed to do? And he would, I mean, I've saved all my papers. If you were looking at all my old grad school papers, he'd feel it. Neologism, neologism. <laughs> it's just so crazy. Like, and I love that, but... So yeah. for yourself, it's like, yeah, of course it takes a while to describe what you're doing because also you're a person with feelings and a personal life and goals and you're also doing those things. Mm -hmm. So then who has the time to pause life to and pause go and like, think. how do I describe me? And I'm still in the process of becoming. Right, you know, I'm we still, always are. We always are. I'm Let's like, hope. Go yeah, let, I'm still like processing who I am and who I want to be and it's always shifting and it's always changing, you know. Which, what a relief. Though. Well, yeah, and I'm... And I like that. Like, yeah, I feel like too. I'm always in the process of becoming. And my husband's like, oh, much you navel gaze. And <laughs> I just love navel gazing. I mean, I really, really do. I have to talk it through to feel it and then be convinced by it. But mm -hmm. I'm in a really good space now with being able to not only articulate um, with, with continued passion, mm -hmm. um, but also to be able to live it. That's that right. sort of has come together for you, me. You know what? I don't know. I don't know why this popped in my. I've thought about this question a few times throughout our conversation. But mm -hmm. you know, you've been. You brought up that you're 47. Mm -hmm. So you, and you started your studies in the 90s. Mm -hmm. How has it been for you? And um, and this is just like from you know I'm. I just turned 30 like last week. Oh, congratulations! Just, Thank you. I remember 30. <laughs> so great. Yeah. Um, how has it been for you? Because you were talking about the mid nineties mm -hmm. and like just that very um, like big wave of sort of like independent black cinema at the mm -hmm. time. Um, and then from, from my perspective, mm -hmm. I see that just on my own radar or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then sort of it, there being a lull of, yeah. in time. Yeah. How has that been for you navigating um, 
like following your passion and your sensibilities and your awareness of culture and all of the incredible work coming out of Mm -hmm. artists across cultures, specifically with black creatives. um, And with the way media has changed. I mean, what happened is that it's interesting, you know, we were writing about documentary and, you know, I also have this certificate in culture and media and reality television changed everything. You know, like I was there like before it came on the scene Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it really changed, um, I think, the level of democracy we bring to the media, but it also changed like the quality too in Mm. terms of content. I mean, no one's going to like really challenge that notion. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's also, I go back and forth on that because absolutely the quality in Mm. terms of content. Yeah. But then also I think it opened up um, a certain demographic to being more open to like lower grade visual quality. Well, that's true. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just like a different way of seeing. I mean, my husband will still like, you know, laugh at me if I'm using a filter that makes something look old. You you know what I mean? (laughs) I mean, we think about it, but people were making like bad home videos and, you know, the quality of a lot of Super 8. I mean, that was like, you know, an acquired taste, if you will. Right. So I feel like, you know, audiences now have a palette for many different tastes Mm -hmm. and they may not necessarily know like the history you know right of where that imagery started um or the genesis of it but i do think that people um their palettes have become so open to all type of visual information totally and that's exciting i mean even my eight-year-old can figure it i mean she took pictures of me last week just as a one-off and well, my phone, uh-huh. and she went through all the filters, like, and she, she loves black and white, which is interesting to me. Uh-huh. So she went through all the filters, and she did it, what she captured with motion. I was shocked when I got the phone back. The chick has an eye. Like, well, she surprised. knows how to see. You have I an mean, eye. But, yeah, but I I did not have that at eight. Let's be, like, really clear. Like, <laughs> But she, she does, and she has her own way of viewing and what she's – but she is, like – you are what you're exposed to. Right, totally. You know what I mean? So, and, you know, kids, like all of us, we're sponges, you know? Yeah. So you pick that up. But, yeah, the kids of today, they've the, seen so many different things. too. Like, right? Yeah. Like, when we were growing up, if yeah. you were going to take photos, it was like, you need to take a, like, you get two or three because they're expensive to develop. Well, exactly. And then you won't know what they look like for a few weeks. weeks. Versus with, with her, she's grown up being able to take 100 photos in a row experiment move around see what other like she's grown up just with yeah or or video i mean when she was young my husband used to find on his phone all these videos she'd taken of herself that's amazing you know like these little surprises but you are i mean they're with youth today and i remember writing about this 20 years ago but it's even like i I mean it's even more so today their dexterity with a variety of media is incredible to me Mm. It mm-hmm. really, really is. I mean, my daughter will spend a Sunday. She's one of these like visual um, exhibition type people. Like she mm-hmm. has like a visual brain and a math brain and a music brain too. But more than anything, she's really crafty. Like this little kite here. She mm-hmm. like built with her hands. Oh, wow. Yeah. She'll build like buildings and then she'll have her iPad on, like looking at it out of the side of her eye. And uh-huh. She'll go to a room and get materials, and she'll build with whatever is like available. 
She never likes to, th if she thinks it's something she can build with, don't throw it away. I need that for my projects or whatever. That's so sweet. She has built dollhouses and all this stuff. But the idea of just playing with your hands. Yeah. While concurrently, you know, taking in your media, <laughs> your media, yeah. you know, at the same time, I, I find that like really interesting because I'm creative, but that I hate that I'm not crafty. Like, right. I'm not, not like she is. Well, you know? yeah. And I mean, we all have, it, it is yeah. tricky because that, that stuff is, um, it, I go back and forth on like, oh, does that mean that I should then develop that skill or should I just be okay not having it? Right. Yeah. Like I really, because when you're somebody who does so many different things that yeah. like are seemingly different, but I think, yeah. you know, what you do is also all very interconnected. Like it all makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. If you were doing exactly what you do and then you were like, oh, also I got like very into like whatever, some very highly technical non, because everything you do is very related to humanity. Yeah. And art is a part, not only an expression of humanity, but it impacts culture in a really meaningful way. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, as you know, through your experience of having such supportive parents is that when you consume art mm -hmm. that makes you feel good and you see representation or, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And it just expands your mind that it really changes your sort of... Um, just like internal value as a person. As a person. And you can feel good about yourself. Like I've never gone through that whole spate of like self-loathing artists mm. or whatever. I just have never felt that. Yeah. You know, um, a friend sent me the article the other day. I haven't read it, but it's about what black women go through who have natural hair. And I'm like, oh yeah, I've had that experience. But, you know, for me, when I cut my hair, I just felt like me. And right. it was not a question of like ever going back, <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Yeah. And I dealt with a lot of those like frustrations. I still do to this mm -hmm. day. Um, but there's no, this is who I am and I'm so comfortable with her. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I like her so much, so there's never any going back for me. Um, and I realized what a gift that is like now that I'm, now that I have a daughter really. Yeah. Absolutely. You know what I mean? That um, I never, you know, I was always like, you know, I never had any like body insecurity or things like that. I mean, I went through a spate where I had really bad like cystic acne. Oh, it was mm. terrible. But that didn't even get in my way. I'm like, there's makeup for that. There's makeup. You're right. And, and probably, presumably just from your personality. I assume you were yeah. also just like, oh, it's frustrating because it's painful and now I have to put on and makeup. And now I have to put on makeup. You know, it's just like one more thing. But then like, why not make it dramatic? So I... It's interesting, a lot of things um, that so many young girls go through now because there's so much media out there, Absolutely. you know, telling them what they should be and how they should be. And if they're not exposed to the right media. And not if, you know, if I you're mean, not the voice in your child's head. Right. Like, I don't even know what. Somebody else is. Somebody many else Many other people, potentially. Yeah. And if I don't get, if I don't define the narrative before, you know, the landscape of media does... And it's and it seeps through, especially when it's algorithm. When it's algorithm, yeah. Like it was difficult enough already. Yeah. When it was, um, like network television. Yeah. Right. And magazines. A magazine. Yeah. And billboards and things like that. Yeah. But when it's an algorithm that you know you can't pick what your kid is on. Yeah. And my friend Missy, who was on talking about parenting, we talked a little bit about that about mm -hmm. how, um, just sort of because you know having a twenty-four-year-old, a thirteen-year-old, an eight-year-old. Their experience with digital is all very it's different. It's all times. very different. Um, yeah, and parenting during those different times yeah. is 
I'm sure that's really totally. enlightening. Yeah. yeah, and she so she's had to stay up to speed and an mm-hmm. understanding, and then she had, her two older ones are girls, and her youngest one is a boy. Mm-hmm. And I love what she said to her son because mm-hmm. he's eight, and he was like, "But mom, I want the YouTube app." Yeah, and she was like, "And her kids are great. Her kids yeah. are like insanely just trustworthy." Mm-hmm. Whereas I was not. I was always getting into some, some trouble. trouble. Like this, <laughs> I would not ever. If my mother ever like had put a boundary on something I could do, there's a reason why. Yeah, because I was always finding ways to cross the line and do something behind her back. Just yeah. perpetually, mm-hmm. she had a reason to not trust so, me. And so. <laughs> It's just like how you came out. Totally. Yeah. I came out. The mis- acorn that fell at her feet. Mischievous. <laughs> yeah. That's how I came out. And, mm-hmm. um, and I love what Missy said to her son, which was like, no, it's not that I don't trust you. I don't trust YouTube. Yeah. To be responsible so, with the content it shows you. Yeah. And I trust you completely that you will not seek out anything you should not be seeking, mm-hmm. that you won't click on anything you know is inappropriate, but sometimes just seeing those titles, seeing the subject, whatever. It plants the seed. And for girls especially, that, you know, I'm, I know definitely mm. you know men have body dysmorphia like mm. men have these other issues but for girls like there is that layer of that you're a lot of times that the narrative is like your value is what you bring physically to the table to, yeah and not what's in your head and you know yep. at the same time yeah. concurrently i mean it's exciting for me working in fashion totally on my like i wouldn't even call it an inspiration board it's like i don't know it's it's more like a diary board you know um that i can like fill it up with like black faces and that's huge and i mean presumably i already know the answer to this question but yeah. was that not always the case that was not i mean you know i remember black model was on the magazine late 70s early 80s you ran out and you hoarded it you kept it mm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. you could not fill up a full wall of right. current images in fashion of black and brown models and also not showing any diversity in that. yeah like the excitement because i grew up in a fairly diverse area and with a fairly diverse mm-hmm. like friend group mm-hmm. and so i didn't know that other people were shocked at the idea mm-hmm. that it is not abnormal culturally for there to be like black kids who are very into anime yeah yeah like that to me was obvious yeah or skateboarding <laughs> or skateboarding or, or dungeons right. and dragons or totally and it's like yeah. literally just normal people well, think, normal people like, things that are part of our pop culture but when that's all you know if somebody hasn't had interactions with black culture and like there's only one black family in an area yeah. those poor kids are held to whatever standard Gender. they're being told black is yeah and so to now see shows like Insecure and mm-hmm. to see um, just like the variety of media, like, and um, She's Gotta Have It and yeah. just different sort of, I mean, I was so excited. I um, was very lucky and got hired to shoot um, for Marvel at Comic-Con last year mm-hmm. for, at San Diego Comic-Con. Yeah. And there was like an entire all day, like Afrofuturism, mm-hmm. like venue. Of course. Off of, which is... Of course, right, but I don't imagine that Comic-Con started that way, right? With oh, that, no, like, it major... didn't start that way. I right. mean, I remember, you know, one of my friends told me, she's like, oh, Erica, because I was writing about Afrofuturism in cinema. It was like a whole chapter in my dissertation, like people who were doing this. And mm-hmm. um, she's like, but you're Afrofuturist, girl. I'm like, but that's just like one chapter, <laughs> you know what I right. mean? It's just yeah. like one chapter of, of practice and who we are and performance, Um but it's interesting in commercial media. Now you have that. I right. mean, on this board, I mean, there's so many like iterations of what black beauty is and what black joy is. 
Um, and I think that that's become really more and more important to me. You know, when yeah. I was talking about earlier, the types of stories we tell and how we tell them and how we show them, you know, for me, black joy has always been an important thing because I've had so many beautiful and joyous experiences. Mm-hmm. I mean, there have been pain too, but what you see in the media is usually all the painful stuff, Yeah, you know? Um, and I want to, I think that we can balance that narrative. Mm-hmm. you know, with joy. And I think one of the reasons, particularly with my company, I mean, I started it for practical reasons too. Um, after the Whitney and writing my dissertation, I worked in television for a bit, which mm-hmm. I love, you know, cause I was committed to like finding that commercial audience. And, right. um, what did you do in television? Oh, I was, um, a cultural correspondent for uh-huh. the oxygen network. Okay. Um, and then I also did some work for NPR right. as well. For all things considered. All things considered. Correct? I wrote for Ms. Magazine, but oh, really, yeah, oh but I God, really like loved working in television mm-hmm. and, I was, you know, covering the art and design beat. So I do movie reviews and I'd like inter- interview um, designers, you know, at Fashion Week when it was still in the That's tents. So and, fun. you know, sometimes spend like a week with them and creating what we at that time in media called evergreen pieces. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, so spending, you know, time at Oscar de la Renta or Donna Karen, just hanging out for a week, putting together this evergreen yeah, piece. Life. I know, a five to seven minute <laughs> piece about, you know, their practice. Um, but that was great, you know, yeah. and that was like, I remember it was a time of video. So they all, they sent us all to like digital video camp. So it'd be like me and like the camera girl, we easy, fast and dirty. Yeah. But this was when we were really, it was just right before reality television was taking over. So everything was like super quick, fast and dirty. You figured it out. Um, and the language of media started, you know, changing. Um, and what do you mean by that the language of media started changing? I think the language of what it mean, meant to be a producer. Mm-hmm. Then you were really a Jane of all trades. You know, up until then, in newsrooms, everything had been so segregated. You were a writer, or you were an editor, right. or you were a producer, or you were, you know, doing voiceovers or a host. Now... You were doing like every job, which speaks to who you are already. Yeah, so you're like perfect. That was great. I'm not gonna. Be I was like doing every silent. job. You do a rough cut, and but then we would sit down. It's interesting because editing is so important. Mm-hmm. How you craft a story is oh, everything. Absolutely. So we do a rough cut, and then I would sit down with these like older male, like former like ABC News editors, <sighs> which I learned a great deal from. I right. to be honest about how to tell a story, a news story visually. And it was fun working for me because I was doing all the fashion cool pieces and the, like how to choose music and all yeah. of that. Oh, my God. I love television so much. And I really wanted to like work in it forever. But then it became like reality television. And I was like, I don't know if <laughs> this is the place for me. St- you know what I mean? At that right. moment. Yeah. still. But I have to say, I just I mean, because it brought together all my skills. Right. As a thespian, as a writer, as a critic, you mm-hmm. know, um, as an editor, um, I just loved it. So by the time I worked at FIT, and that was the last job I had before we moved to Seattle as an assistant dean of art and design, I truly had either done the job or worked with people who done the jobs of like every major in that department. And how old were you when you became a dean there? So I was, 
47 now. 37? Okay. Because I got married 10 years ago. Okay. 36. I'm only asking because I'm also yeah. just thinking through, like, I always forget that you're 47 in my mind. You're, like, okay. much younger. And people then... tell me that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I probably behave younger, too. I don't know why I read really younger. Young, you know yeah. what I mean? And yeah. also, like, it's it's one of those things that is such a social construct, too, where yeah. it's, like, I think of 47 of when I remember my mom being 47, right? Or yeah. I remember, and it's, I had the real epiphany of, like, how age truly is just a number when I remember it. At one point, my best friend was turning 40, and I was mm-hmm. going to Hawaii for her 40th birthday um, with her and her family and her kids. In fact, um, mm-hmm. Missy, who was on talking about her three oh, kids. Yeah. So yeah. we went to Hawaii for her 40th birthday. And then at the same time, there was somebody I worked with mm-hmm. who, when I mentioned that to, they went, oh, I'm turning 40 this year, too. Yeah. And I thought, like, what? What? I know. Because she seemed so much older. Oh, was well, the there's thing. that. Whereas my friend, of course, like, she's my friend. She's, like, super young. Which, and she's yeah. super young. She, yeah. like, still, she dresses young, you know what I mean? Whereas mm-hmm. this other woman who was turning 40, I was like, oh, I thought you were, like, my mom's age. You oh know what God. I mean? Like, which is, <laughs> I mean, but also, like, I'm sure, you know, she worked full-time and has kids. And, like, yeah. so, so that will age you. But I also, but even her interest and her awareness of culture and everything, yeah. I was like, oh, certainly you're, like, a solid, you know, nearly 30 years older than I am versus being... Closer would, to my best friend's age. It could be. I mean, I think about it because I've made a lot of new friends since I've been in Seattle who are moms mm-hmm. who, you know, started having children older. It's interesting. I'm in the middle. I have friends who are like a decade older than me. I have a lot of older friends who are in their 70s and 80s mm-hmm. who I just love, who really know how to live. <laughs> right. You know, and then I have people who are like not yet 40. Right. You know, because our kids are the same ages. So I don't know. Maybe it's the area in which I work, but I, yeah, you know, a lot of people are afraid of like 50 and I just, I don't know. I said something to myself and I don't know where I read it, but I remember around 27, I was like, I'm just going to try everything and do everything because yeah. I don't want to be 50 wondering what if. I had the same epiphany at 27 yeah. where I, and I think in fact, I don't know. Did you ever read The Artist's Way? I did. Oh, my God. I love uh, her. Yes. It's, I mean, I not only did I read it, I still have a copy. It's all dog-eared and, like, tattered. But yeah, underlined. Underlined. I, like, did The Artist's Way with – there was an article written about her in New York Times. Julia Cameron, is that right? Yeah, Julia yeah. Cameron a while ago. And I was like, oh, my God, this goddess, who hasn't done it, who's a creative? And those who aren't. Right. Yeah. So, well, and there was a quote in sort of, you know how like in the margins they have little quotes. Oh, I don't know yeah. which edition you have, but yeah. mine had quotes mm-hmm. in it. It and, still does. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And so I, there was one specifically that really spoke to me. Cause my, mm-hmm. Like I mentioned before, my mom went to school for art. And yeah. she's really talented. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a quote in there that said something like, nothing affects a child more than the unlived dreams of their parent. Mm-hmm. And that really stuck with me. And I went like, you know what? I don't want to be that person. Yeah. Because that did impact me a lot. Yeah. I mean, I failed art in the seventh grade Mm -hmm. because I didn't think that three of my five projects were good enough to turn in. Oh, yeah. Because I had this thing thing where it like needed to be perfect. So perfect because, well, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't. And it wasn't until... And in fact, I was reflecting a while ago on like, because my work with photography has, at least I can see that it's gotten better. Like I'm happy with the stuff that I create, mm-hmm. but I've been playing music since I was seven years old. Yeah. And I realized like, oh, you got good at f- photography because you were having fun. Yeah. And with music, I put so much pressure on myself to be good. Yeah. 
And so I finally had to go like, oh, why don't you just go and play music and literally like play, like have fun have with fun it. Have fun for the fun of it. And yeah. don't, you know, leave in tears every time you leave the rehearsal yeah. studio because you're not good enough, you know, like I know. get over it. I, you know, it's funny. I mean, I experienced a lot of that, like the commitment to art and I, the rigor to it. I mean, mm -hmm. just from being in art school, you right. know what I mean? It's like, you know, and it's so serious. It's so serious. Either you're going to fully commit or what are you doing? You're like right. you're wasting your time and the audience's time. Mm -hmm. And so I do put that pressure on myself. I know I do. I'm hard on myself. Mm -hmm. I work on it, but I don't know if that will ever improve. I hope it will. Yeah. At the same time, I think, you know, you're forgiving to yourself. Yeah. Though. You know, it's one thing to pressure yourself to excel and improve. And yeah. I think that that's an important part of progress in yeah. general on a societal level and on an individual level. Yeah. But you're also not, like you said, like you don't really have negative self-talk. Like you're not waking up like, oh, you're a terrible person no. because you whatever. And I, I mean, think that that's yeah, where I don't. Yeah. I have bad days like everybody else and there's some weird serotonin drip and I'm like, oh my God, what's happened? But I'm not... <laughs> I'm never, I'm like a happy person, like pretty, like the cup is always half full. Right. Like even in cloudy Seattle. Yeah. And which, then when the sun comes out, then I'm just like over, I can chemically <laughs> feel the ship and then I'm like super bubbly, you know, and Isn't over the amazing? moon. But it, you know, and it is amazing. And I'm just thankful. Like that's the way I came out. My daughter came out that way. Like she's just always up. Yeah. You know, um, and everybody has their bad days, but for the most part, you know, you've got like a head start <laughs> and all of this madness that we're surrounded with in our world. If you can just like be up. Totally. I mean, that's it's, like half the, <laughs> the it battle. It absolutely is. And yeah. you know, I think, um, so let me not really backtrack, but mm -hmm. I think what I was asking also, and I'm mm -hmm. keeping this in mind, right? Like at a time where we are seeing, um, more so than in some time, perhaps mm -hmm. ever, mm -hmm. um, black filmmakers, black yeah. artists, like really getting seen and yeah. acknowledged and having it seen and acknowledged that they have not been acknowledged. Exactly. Um, and one of my concerns is like, mm. obviously there's been pockets of time, times previously where people went like, oh, finally. Yeah, yeah. Right. And then that sort of like, when it like disappeared a little bit from yeah. like mainstream conversations. Yeah. Um, do you have like fears around that? Do you have concerns around that? Like how do you... Um, because obviously it's like a major part of your like a, focus. Of my focus. How have you kept it alive through your work? Through my work. Time? I just feel like with my own personal work, it's important for me to do the best that I can. Like mm -hmm. I, I tell people all day, they're like, well, what are we going to do to make a difference? Well, my, my work has always, for me, been about making a difference. Yeah. You know, I'm interested in the lived experiences of black folk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I will tell anybody that has always been like my interest, you know, and elevating the discourse and being able to tell multiple perspectives and multiple narratives. That's always, you know, these stories are who we are, you know, and, and they define our value. Um, and it's important for us to tell them for ourselves. So I see like little mini like paradigm shifts happening. That's mm -hmm. what I've experienced. So right now I see like in general, there's a renaissance when it comes to cinema. You know, um, there's a renaissance when it comes to quality content, and that's great. Um, I think when you think about the industry, you know, of cinema, um, it's just been so racist, you know, for so long. Yeah. And it takes time for institutions 
to change. Yeah, because you know? it takes time for people for to people change. to change, and even if audiences are demanding it, you know, unless you're on the inside, you know, green lighting something or making the changes. Change is difficult. It's hard. I mean, yeah. it's like I told you before. If you have people who are going to film school, and on their syllabi, they aren't seeing these, you know, experimental black films, you yeah. know, from the 60s and the 70s, or silent films from even before then, they don't know the history, yeah. you know, of what African Americans have brought. Um, to the scope of that practice. Yeah. So there's so much history that people don't know. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like with so much media, then you have to really curate what you're learning and how you're learning. And this is where education comes in. Mm -hmm. And I think this is why I really enjoyed working in academic administration because I felt empowered to make true change. Right. If something wasn't on a syllabus or a course of instruction... It's the deans and the provosts who are making these decisions about mm. how things are going to be changed. Mm -hmm. You know, if a student is coming to my door frustrated because their professor is teaching a decade-old syllabi, that must change. Yeah. So I really feel that there is a need, you know, it always begins with education, right? Mm -hmm. There is a need for more people to be in education, to change how people learn, right? you know, to change and update the curriculums they're learning. And then you'll get different perspectives when people begin making stories and telling stories. Right. I mean, that's the way that it, that it happens. Yeah. Um, it's like, you know, I look at my daughter, of course she's going to tell stories differently than I can because she's been exposed to all these different things that I think are important, right. you know? Like, yeah. it was important for me to go in the Brooklyn Museum. She's in that stroller. I don't care, but she's going to be exposed and she's going to see. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, she's going to be on that plane and we're going to travel and we're going around. And it's fun to grow with her. Mm -hmm. You know, things that as a child I didn't have the opportunity to experience. It's fun to experience them, you know, through my daughter. Mm -hmm. You know, through my history and through her eyes. And I feel almost a responsibility to bring that rigor to what she sees yeah. and how she sees it. That's the only way it's going to change. I mean, it's an education change. You know, it's an industry change, mm -hmm. you know. And then once you're in the, in the industry, um, then there's a question of, like, fairness and tolerance. Right. You know, it's a multi-layered discussion and a multi-tiered endeavor. Right. And let me tell you, it is fierce. <laughs> Even what even what I experience, yeah, what what I feel with all I bring to the table, mm -hmm. you know, I I still deal with issues of, oftentimes people telling me that I'm like you know overqualified. Mm. I cannot tell you how many times I get that. Well, when I ask for my fee, oh Erica, maybe you're overqualified to this. Maybe you're you know it's too much. Would you tell a white male that he is overqualified? Right. You know when you know. They're filling up with half the experience and credentials. So let me tell you, the struggle never ends. Yeah. I mean, if anything, I'm in the thick of it. Are there any sort of, um, are there any sort of like phrases or responses you've developed to sort of counteract that and have open up those discussions more? Oh, yeah. I mean, I just put people on the spot. You know, when I get that, I'm like, no, I'm not overqualified. I'm uniquely qualified. 
for this position. Oh, that's a good phrase. Well, I am I uniquely that. qualified. Like, there's totally. nobody else like you, Lene. There's nobody else like me. I'm uniquely qualified for this position. Mm-hmm. I've been working in art and design for like 25 years now. Right. There is no one who's going to have the breadth and depth of experience that can bring a unique perspective to this project. And so that's why you're paying that fee. You just have to truth telling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. You know, and some and people will get uncomfortable uh-huh. with that, but it is. And then also people hoard their opportunities, they hoard their information. Yeah. I mean, it is not easy being a person of color and being a creative in any commercial sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you look at anybody who's made it what they're still dealing with. I mean, Shonda Rhimes will tell you (laughs) any day of the week. Yeah. You know? And look how many awesome contributions she's made. Yeah. Oprah. And and profitable. And profitable. Like, not only awesome, but, But like, like, literally a proven track record of profitability. Of profitability, and everybody's watching it. Yes. Not just black folk. Everybody's watching it. Um, So it's interesting, you know, to me. So, and I think, for me, that's why it's really fun for me to read, like, other people's narratives and other people's stories. Yeah. Um, I'm becoming more comfortable with even telling my own story because for uh-huh. so long, I mean, while there was a lot of black joy, there's also a lot of sadness, you know, mm-hmm. in my home, you know, for a long time, like living, you know, with very little means and losing my mother and my father at such a young age, you know, I didn't feel comfortable telling my personal mm. story, you know, and there was a lot of things that I was rightly or unrightly like ashamed of. Mm-hmm. Um, but but have built up resilience in me. What do you mm-hmm. think shifted your openness to discussing those things? Starting this business. <laughs> okay. You know, meaning the Ula company. Meaning the Ula company. So we mm-hmm. come to Seattle. Um, I looked for a job in academic administration because I'm fully committed to being an educator at that time, but I didn't find anything at my level. And I had a one-and-a-half-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. And then there were a couple of things that happened. I said, well, if I can't find an academic administration position, maybe I'll just go back to curating Mm -hmm. while I find my sea legs in Seattle. Mm. Get my daughter saddled. My husband had, we moved here for his work. So um, he was traveling like at the beginning, like two months, two weeks out of every month. Oh, wow. So that was the first time I was like ever like single momming it. Right. And when she was first born, I had like a full time nanny. From like yeah. 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. I go to work. Nanny would bring Luba to me. It wasn't until I got to Seattle that I realized, oh, my God, it's fun hanging out with Luba. <laughs> and had I not moved to Seattle, I would have missed so much of it. Right. It would have been someone else's pleasure, which is crazy yeah, for which me. I love that you said it that way because yeah. we were talking before we started recording. We were talking yeah. about just sort of that whole dynamic of. Um, yeah. child rearing and everything. And I love that you call it someone else's pleasure. Yeah. And, it, and, and delight. You know, and yeah. I would not have known any different because everybody else around me, all my colleagues were doing the same thing. Yeah. So when I came here, it did give me some time and some freedom to think about how I wanted to construct the life I wanted to live. Mm-hmm. You know, so by not finding that opportunity that I thought I was, I thought I was going to repeat my life, you know, that I had right. in New York here. I said, like, oh, I've got to build something new, you know, mm-hmm. so... I began working independently, you know, as an independent curator. And it was fun to go back to curating, having been in academia, Mm -hmm. you know, because then I was, 
I was more succinct. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Because you have type, so much language. Yeah. And the type like, of work I wanted to do. And yeah. I was really, and still am, I really enjoy working with emergent artists mm-hmm. who are at the cusp, who want to push their craft or practice to the next level. Um where they can finally get the representation they need, you know, right. or get that university position, you know, and start getting recognition. And, you know, their work is now, you know, purchased by um, committees and museums. Yeah. I love that space of working with totally. artists. It's just so much fun. Which that makes me, so that actually mm-hmm. leads me to ask some questions about curating. Because yeah. I was thinking about it on the way over here. Yeah. And I think that being a curator puts you in a really interesting position mm-hmm. where you are beholden to sort of, and correct me if I'm wrong by all mm-hmm. means, or feel free to jump in and sure. share your perspective, but I was thinking about it, I was like, oh, I imagine you're beholden to sort of like three different um, kind of like pillars where it's like mm-hmm. you have the institution that you're serving, you have the client per se, like in, in whether it's Seattle Art Museum or, mm-hmm. you know, wherever it yeah. may be. Um, but then you also have the artists that you're serving. Yeah. Um, and I don't really know how money flows in curation, right? Because yeah. you're not buying the pieces or are you, mm. you know what I mean? I don't really know how that works. Yeah. But then you also have the community and your, your audience, your audience. Yeah. And so I'm really interested too, where, um, you know, Seattle's not known for mm-hmm. uh, being a not white community. Yeah. <laughs> and so I imagine then also when you were curating shows that are specific to, sharing like black art and Mm -hmm. like you know just like everything because we I didn't know this when we met but Mm -hmm. you curated the show that actually made me go like oh I'm gonna become a Seattle Art Museum member oh with disguise yeah I co-curated that with Pam and let me tell you Pam provided me Pam McCluskey oh my daughter just whispered in my ear how old was I when I did that so that was 2015 that was four years ago you would have been four Luba (laughs) (laughs) so it was great because Seattle Art Museum has this wonderful collection of African art. Um, and I'd had all this background and connections with artists who were doing new media and emergent media, mm-hmm. um, you know, with an interested interest in diaspora art. So it was an opportunity for them to put the collection in context. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it just made it fresh and new. Right. You know, for people who, you know are like traditional museum goers as well as young people and new people who want to see Absolutely. cool things. So there was a lot of video and digital art and music. And that's what I like to do. Like that's mm-hmm. what I bring. I'm really good. And I really enjoy creating environments mm-hmm. um, that speak to people's senses. Because, and it really did because that was that show mm-hmm. like made, I'd never been to Seattle art museum before that was mm-hmm. my first time going. And that show is what caused me to go is I was like, this looks incredible. Mm-hmm. I need to go to this. Mm-hmm. I went and I have not been to a show since there. I've been to many incredible shows since, since but then yeah. Yeah. there, but that completely just changed the entire vibe of that space that it took over. Yeah. I mean the use of color yeah. and, you and know, light. and, and light and sound and oh my God, it was, you know, even the cover of the exhibition catalog. Yeah. Choosing the art that goes on uh, it. And it was so Like, beautiful. if we're going to do a commission, then we should be doing... We, on the cover should be work you have not seen before and new media right. work. You know, all of those were like, you know, mini challenges. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I like that. I like being challenged by my fellow curators and the push and pull of it. Yeah. Because that's how institutions grow and change. And I also realized that, you know, I'm at an age 
I think in my practice and because I've worked in so many spaces from nonprofit to profit, you know, um, commercial independently, I'm just not a, I feel like I really have learned to know what audiences want and need. Mm -hmm. And I'm not afraid to say that. Yeah. Um, and I'm not afraid to trust my gut. Right. Which is a great thing to have at this point. Go with your gut. Yeah. Go with my gut. That's my daughter. Yeah. Go with your (laughs) gut. Yeah. I go with my gut. And it's liberating. Once you realize that you were not misguided. Yeah. It is like, oh, actually, I, um, my friend Corey said something really smart because mm-hmm. we, we both work in social media. Mm-hmm. And he said something just about, you know, because social media, um, similar to what you do, yeah. uh, you're surrounded by a lot of people who don't actually, aren't actually familiar with the subject. Yeah. And they have a lot of opinions on how it should be done. And there's this disconnect. Yes. And yeah. there's also a lot of opinions about, about how much your time is worth. Yeah. And so he said something that was so smart to me where he said, look, we are paid for our EQ. Yeah, yeah. Like, we are paid for that, mm-hmm. and that is why we're here mm-hmm. and not a robot, right? Like, yeah. that's not why you're not just scrolling through options of art and throwing those in a room. room. Yeah. Like, you're paid because of your pulse on culture and yeah. your emotional and social intelligence. And then mm-hmm. also just your own sort of, like, canon of information that you have. That you have in here. From like, your own unique That's experience. what you paid me. I mean, that's essentially, whenever I got, whenever I continue to get pushback, that's what I give. Yeah. But then it's shifted, though. So now I feel like I don't fight, struggle as much. If someone calls me for a project, they kind of know what to expect. They want to be inspired. Right. That's cool. Yeah. You know what that I mean? I'm like, this is new. Yeah. You know, where you kind of want me to think outside of the box, and it forces me to like you know push my own boundaries totally but I mean I've just I've been so really blessed you know I remember doing disguise and people are like what were you thinking about I was like oh I was thinking about digital photography and video and performance art and interior design and graphic design and advertising design like all these things you know were in my that we consume like was in my head like you know, how art could be wayfinding, you know, and not wanting to use so much text on the walls to guide yes. audience members. You know, it's something that I got from theater. Mm-hmm. And I had this teacher who would always be like, feel your space. Right. <laughs> it was like this, we laugh because we were like teenagers. What? Feel your what? Like, yeah. Feel your space. But I finally get <laughs> What that means when you can be in a room and an exhibition speaks for itself. Yeah. Like you can feel it. You get, and you're emotionally um, changed. Mm-hmm. And that's what you take out into the world. And then you tell a friend about it. That's what art is. Yeah. You know, where there's a shift that happens inside you. You're moved. Totally. You know, and I also see my work as a curator as public service. You know, mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, it's not about my specific point of view like right. we are working at the service of potential spectators right i think of it more like as an educator well and that's that's part of my question too is that mm-hmm. you know um in curating shows like that mm-hmm. then do you also then have conversations about like how and who to advertise to and like how to reach those people because you know one thing that i think about is like how, you know, shows like that are, like, very important for black kids to see. Yeah, yeah. 
So there's how discussion. How do you reach those kids, right? Like, mm-hmm. how do you get their parents to know or, like, their, their teachers to So there's, like, a tier that. thing. Then there's, like, becoming connected with, like, the education department. Okay. And also becoming, you know, also being a an active member of your community. Yeah. You know what I mean? Very because important. that was another thing, too. It's like, well, you do these shows, you know, you're not working in a silo. Right. The people, you know... In the community, need to know who you are. Yeah. Um, so it was a lot of that. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because I was still kind of new to town. Right. Um, and I remember, you know, where we went to get our hair done. And I was like, tell them about the show and tell your friends, you know, becoming a part of the community, mm-hmm. you know, and not just the black community, but all communities. Yeah. And then for me also, letting people know, I think in the art world, like, well, sure, I love doing, you know, diaspora art and new mm-hmm. media and culture. You know, but the last artist that I just work with is a Caucasian woman, you right. know, um, for, the for the show that we did in the porcelain room, room yeah. you know. But again, she's a practice theorist, you know. Yeah. Um, she's also worked in museums. Mm-hmm. So the breadth and depth of her knowledge of contemporary art practice, as mm-hmm. well as her appreciation for living in an urban area in London and seeing all types of pieces. When I saw her work, I was like, oh, she gets it. Yeah. And she has a point of view. How long is that up for? That's up for two years. Oh, good. Yeah, well, so, if you're listening, you should, you yeah, should go see it. Go I see, was very taking lucky. Tea. Yeah, yes. taking tea. I was very lucky, and Erica invited me, I think, mm-hmm. to like the, I don't know. How, I think that was the opening we had. The opening, yeah. yeah. I, I'm like in um, film headspace, and I almost said premiere, and I was yeah. like, that's not the right I know word. Yeah, if, if you have a chance, I highly recommend that you go and see that. Claire Paddington, is that correct? Claire Partington. Partington. And what was so amazing about that work, I mean, it's just the way I love to work with artists. She put the collection of the porcelain collection at the Seattle Art Museum in context. And her specific piece deals with the loss of human life, essentially, mm-hmm. during the ceramic trade. And right. so it just gives you some contextualization for all these beautiful pieces that are in the room. Yes. You know, what was the human loss? What right. were the social, cultural, you know, religious um political dynamics that were at play at this yes. time these all these multiple narratives you know she was able to capture um and you know multiple scenes yeah these little vignettes it's so good it's so good and that was a commission and it was just acquired and what does that mean um when it's a commission does that mean it was a new piece okay that we paid her to do so okay. a new piece specifically that was site specific for the museum I see. And now the museum just acquired it. So now it's in the permanent collection. So it's so important for where she is in her career right now. Now she's on, you know, she's on fast track. Uh And so I love, you know, identifying that talent that, you know, is just about to bloom and come into its own. I cannot tell you how satisfying that is because I always feel that way. Like, you know, um, this person is going to like turn into a butterfly, you know, and to help them and hone their craft. Like, and you're, you're part, part of that. Yeah. Um, and helping them push their practice. Like she never, you know, created that many pieces together in the scene. Really? She's usually creating like these one or two pieces. That was a big deal for her. And so then do you work with her throughout that process yeah. to like help? Help. Um, you you give feedback. Yeah. We're talking about Claire Partington. Remember she came? 
Well, Lupa went London. to the exhibit, I thought, Lupa right? was at the exhibit. Yeah. She, like, insisted on going, like, Fair to enough. the opening. I um, think I know who you're talking about. Yes, Claire Partington, <laughs> the, the exhibition that's in the um, porcelain room at Seattle oh, Art Museum. Yeah, oh, I know. Of course she knows. <laughs> of course she knows. Know she had a very about. fancy coat on. Luba did, I yeah. remember. But, um, um, yeah, so that's exciting. You go through yeah. them. They come up with it. So, you know, you're providing, like, feedback and... And how do you find artists like that, though? Do you, I mean, presumably you're also, you I know look you're everywhere. in the world, like you're doing things. You're in the world and you look everywhere. I mean, yeah. I look everywhere. I mean, Claire was older. You know, she got her degree. She uh-huh. worked and then she went back to her practice. Right. You know, I mean, that's one reason I love the internet and Instagram. Totally. Quite frankly, you find so many people. Before, you used to just see, oh, if a person had promise and a BFA and then they went to one of the like most major you know, MFA programs and people are still funneled through there. Right. You know, but you know, there's great work all over the world now. Yeah. I mean, it's and just, getting exposure and just finally like getting, yeah. Um, I just think that it's super awesome. I mean, I've just put together a group of fun, cool stuff that you just come across. You find on Instagram. And then I ask my artist friends who I've helped, yeah. So that's what's with, with disguise. Right. Everybody I wrote about in my dissertation, I'm like, oh my God, like I can finally like put some of these ideas into practice. Yes. Who would you recommend? They they understood exactly what I was asking. Right. And so I usually just go to the artist. That's so awesome. That's so fun. It's important for me to go to the practitioners. I mean, there's this sort of hierarchy of of um curators and you know gallerists and many of them have very good eyes you know what I mean and do like amazing work but there I mean there's so much creativity out there yeah and I and I learned this just you know as a creative myself you know I'm going to my high school reunion in October and you think about the people who have been blessed enough to actually continue to work in art and design right yeah there's so many creative peoples out there yeah. You know, there were never enough spots for them. And what's so great about this moment is now there's so much entrepreneurship. You can make your own opportunities. Absolutely. And there, there's just a lot more access to understanding that that is an option. Yeah. Because otherwise it it used to be just a very sort of lonely experience and very difficult to connect with other people. Yeah. If you didn't um, know that that existed. So mm-hmm. before we jump into more personal life things... Um, who are artists that you're excited about? And like, I mean, presumably also oh, you're always put me on the spot about that. Oh, I'm so sorry. And I'm going to say, go look at who will see who I follow on Instagram. <laughs> no, it, it is because in this moment right now I'm reading mm-hmm. and I'm reading a lot of slave narratives. Mm. My husband says, are you, you're, you know, it's important to stay woke. I love that people are using that word now, mm-hmm. but I'm not, I'm reading I don't know why I'm reading them. I'm just attracted to um, a lot of these women's stories right now because I've been thinking about like my own history um, and in the past decade, I've lost my great aunt and my grandmother. So now I am like the senior, I guess, matron in the family. Wow. And you're so young. And I'm, which is crazy to me. Yeah. So I've been thinking about these. What an odd (laughs) shift in like life awareness and experience. It's just so weird. Right. So I've just, you know, I don't know. I think because grief never ends. You heal, you know, but your heart just sort of heals funny. 
So, and now that I have a daughter, I just have been thinking about like mothers and daughters and stuff and yeah. um, women. And I come from a line on my mother's side of like all these really strong women. Um, my company is even named after my great grandmother mm -hmm. um, on my mother's father's side. So I've just been thinking about these strong women who like carry all this burden on their back, but yet we're able to contribute such wealth and beauty to the world. And so that's why I'm reading. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh these stories now. I wish I could remember mm -hmm. the name of the show, but I just read about it in the New Yorker mm -hmm. and there is, there are a couple of shows. Yeah. So I haven't watched any of the shows on television No, no, no yet. Not, not TV shows. Oh, not sorry, TV shows. Sorry, like oh. um, in their like arts um, section where they talk oh, about art. Oh. And there is one right now and mm -hmm. I can't remember like what medium it is, but it is yeah. specific yeah. to a woman who was a slave and she mm -hmm. hid in like the attic for like seven years. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, it's all either art or perhaps a film or something. Maybe is it in know. New York? I'll find it because it's in the Not New Yorker that I have like next to my bed. Is it the new New Yorker? Oh, I traveled for a few weeks and so oh, I have, yeah. they're all scattered and out of order. So I'll take I know. a look. But I, I like collect them and then I read them during the summer like it's a book. That's like my favorite <laughs> thing to do. To like sit by the pool with like, I don't know, 10 New Yorkers. Mommy, we don't have a pool. Oh yeah. Well, like when we're on vacation and I put them and to read them. I also read a lot of stuff and it's so shameful now on my um, phone. Mm. That's how I started reading again. It's not shameful. It's just more portable. Because it's I, just more I agree. Uh, yeah. But I love books. And now too. I'm paying double money. So if I really love something, then I go out and buy this pristine book. And then I now I'm treating it as an object. Where before I used to <laughs> circle and underline and things. This, the culture right. has changed it, so much. It is interesting how we engage differently yeah. with, with all media across. Across. Because, yeah. And across generations, across socioeconomic. Like wherever you land. Where, yeah. And like what your priorities and goals are. It is it is fascinating. But, um, but uh, yeah, I always want to give a better answer to that. Like what artists are you looking at? And I just... I haven't been to like any of the major art shows. Um, I haven't been to any of the major art shows in a couple of years because uh -huh. I felt what do you like consider major art shows I'm, like Art Basel, oh, okay. Freeze, okay. you know, all those fun things. Because I was seeing work that I'd seen before, right. so and I wasn't see it on Instagram every day. Well, that's another thing, and it's always fun, like the social right. thing of the shows of and to meet the artists and all of that. But you're right; you can see. But I mean, I love Instagram. Because yeah. then I'm finding people from like all over the continent and this and that. Oh, That's right. how I found Claire. Yeah. Then who's she following? Who she's interested in? There's so much work out there. It's so fun. So the future of really progressive um, curation goes to the people who really have the unique eyes. Right. To tell these stories yeah. in a really interesting way. Like figuring out what the good talent is mm -hmm. um that that that's rigorous work you Absolutely. know but I do feel that for me I'm at a point where I kind of look at work and I know what good work is mm -hmm. you really can't pull the wool over my eyes you know and I know a lot of collectors now and I'll tell them if I think a work is worth it or not yeah like I will and I'll just like I'm not and they appreciate it so when yeah. you're communicating with artists because mm -hmm. I have a question just from um mm -hmm. like the perspective of uh, artists also not being the greatest at organizational skills. Mm. Um, how much value does that add when, like, uh, 
when an artist, because do they always have managers? Are they often self-represented? Um, Most of them are self-represented. Like, uh, not all of them. Right. But, like, for instance, just, just use disguise. Mm-hmm. Over half those artists were self-represented at the time. Right. The ones who were self-represented, represented, many of them now have um, galleries and uh-huh. are, like, doing a major work. Okay. You know, so that's great. But yeah, oh now my doggie has entered the room. Hi, Velvet. <laughs> Hello, friend. Yeah, like I'm like totally like she's fine. She can yeah. crawl on me. I don't mind. So the artists at that point, if they're at a stage where I want to work with them, we pretty much have like similar work ethics. Mm. Like the okay. you know what I mean? Good. The rigor of their work. I've had like some one-offs where, you know, and that's the risk you take with commissions where you commission work. And then you don't get back what you expected to get right. back. Yeah, it happens sometimes, yeah. you know. And how was that conversation with the client though? Like that being the you like, just I just give honest feedback. Okay. Yeah, some artists don't want to hear it. Right, they're not trying to hear that. You, yeah. no one wants to be told what you did wasn't perfect. What you did wasn't perfect. It wasn't what I expected. I'm like I'm not even trying to hear that from myself when I get next. Well, I mean, like with yeah. the museum, though, right? Because then eventually you also then are beholden to like yeah, the museum you're beholden and what you said you were going to deliver. What you were going to do and how to show it. And sometimes you're just stuck with like not showing the best work. I mean, mm. curators don't want to admit this, but this is what happens sometimes with commissions. Right. But, you know, at the end of the day, you did your work as a curator. You provided as much support as you could. And then it's open to like the critics to. Right. Definitely. It moves on, you know? That's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, you can only do the best that you can do. Totally. And that's, you know. Um, and but also yeah. the public doesn't know any better. Sometimes the public doesn't. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they do. Ooh, but yeah. I mean, in terms of like what the expectation was. Oh, yeah. What the they're expectation They're not going to show was. up and go like, well, this isn't what I think that they that commissioned. Um. I know, but I'll, I'll always know. You'll always know, personally. Oh, my God. Is, it, bo- it will bother. It bothers of me course. so How much. How not? I mean, I cannot. Oh. <laughs> you know, because there's so many people who have, particularly when, when it's hubris that got in the way, mm. that's what really gets me. Because... We're in such privileged positions to even be working in this space. Mm-hmm. You know, you just wasted what could have been someone else's spot. Right. Like, Absolutely. I don't ha- have time for that. It and just potentially had me. a negative impact on, um, like, an artist who may be in a similar vein or have or in a, a similar, similar identity. vein. Or if you're working in a group show, it can right. also be disrespectful to your fellow peers. Totally. You know, like yeah. we all, it's it's about this mutual respect and transparency when it comes to um, what expectations are. I mean, you know, but in the art world, it's so curious now. Mm-hmm. You know, even the level of criticism isn't what it used to be. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's changed so much. I think about it now. And every once and again, I have these conversations like I'm having with you tonight. And there are people like, oh, Erica, you should go back and teach. And I'm like, maybe. But I still feel like, oh, there's a lot that I still want to experience. And now that I'm running this business, I'm Mm -hmm. at capacity. Right. Yeah. Especially, I mean, so actually, it's a perfect segue. Mm -hmm. So 
your company, mm-hmm. the Ula Company, mm-hmm. you make beautiful clothing. Thank you. First off, yeah. which is the, this is how we know each other is that I saw her on Instagram and I just that's right. Her, I thought her work was so great and I was like, oh, I'm. I need I'm, to take photos. I yeah, totally remember that. I was like, I'm local to Seattle. I think what you're doing is great. Do you want to just come over and take mm-hmm. some photos of what you're doing? But isn't direct messaging the best? It is. But this is what I do. Like people are like, well, how do you do stuff? I did what you did. I reach mm-hmm. out to people and like, oh, I like this or I saw you're good at this. Right. Will you meet with me? That's how Ula began. Again. Which I'm so glad we met that way because honestly, I would have been way too intimidated had I known that you curated that show and that oh. like that you were, I would have been way too like oh my gosh I'm like not some people up don't know that yet. oh that's the same girl it's funny <laughs> like the curator Erica and that person who runs Ula are like two different they think that it's two I think it's funny it's two different people I just yeah, yeah. well I'm glad I did not read your profile thoroughly before coming before over because I would have been so intimidated instead I showed up just casually like oh hi what's and it was up? like super fun I'm like oh she's super sweet and we talked about work and stuff like that and you know I need it but I don't have like you know it's interesting I've worked harder than I ever have being mm-hmm. an entrepreneur mm-hmm. um and, I, you know, I came to not being an entrepreneur really through my curatorial work. Mm-hmm. I curated a show of African photography mm-hmm. with a focus on fashion. A local venture capitalist saw it, said, oh, you're in Seattle now. Everybody's an entrepreneur. You should start a business. Mm. What would you do? So, of course, back to my initial love of fashion. Mm -hmm. Um, Over the years, I've collected, like, this huge collection of vintage, specifically from, like, the 60s and the 70s. Some from the 50s, late 50s, and some from the early 80s. I'm, like, really, it's like this capsule. Because that's when American sports were really made sense to me. Like, the construction of it, the freedom Mm. of it, the garments. And so, I'd always loved Ankara. When I married my husband, then I had the opportunity to just buy more of it. And I saw that in general, the public was becoming more palatable to, you know, dynamic prints, ethnic Mm -hmm. prints, particularly in homewares. And I was like, there's an opportunity here because if I'm going to wear Ankara, I'm going to wear it more relaxed like my mom and her friends did in the 70s. -hmm. Sure, they had their dashikis, but, you know, they would also have their, like, beautiful, you know, Ankara material or a batik or an indigo or some beautiful floral print. And they would wear these shift-type dresses Mm -hmm. um, because in the African-American Islamic community was all about modesty. Mm -hmm. You know, but these were, like, black women in the 70s and 80s. They also wanted to be chic. Right, and you know, in Miami, and and I or was outside of Miami. Yeah, yeah, you know, I was in my and I'm in Miami. You right. know what I mean? So you know, they would wear like beautiful tunics and beautiful head wraps, and um, you know, that was that black is beautiful moment, mm-hmm. which really left an impression on me as a child. Like when I think of what's cool and chic and beautiful, I go back to these silhouettes that these women wore, and I was like. There's a market for that. Right. You know what I mean? And there's a market to make Ankara, you know, as pervasive in um, American culture as, say, like Lily Pulitzer was. Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. these dynamic prints, you know, and these fun, easy to wear silhouettes um, that is connected, you know, to the diaspora experience, to. Mm -hmm an African experience and something that is just very 
black, but for yeah. everyone. Yeah. That's what it, that's what Ula is. Which it's mm. it's so interesting and I I have a lot of ideas about why this might be with American culture. Yeah. About how interesting it is to me that um, white America mm. has like a lot of hesitations in mm. terms of um, historically in wearing those prints. Yeah. But just willy nilly will put on like a kimono style or like sari inspired dress, and I yeah. presumably it's it's some level of awareness of how that could be um, like misappropriation or whatever, or like some people kind of can be sensitive about that. Yeah, but it's also changing too. Yeah, because you know in this city. The majority of women who buy Ula are white women, mm-hmm. you know, um, and sometimes they want to know the story of Ankara and I'm happy to give them that history and mm-hmm. how it's changing. You know, some of the prints right now are very conversational. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the more traditional prints, you know, have specific stories to them. Right. So it's fun for me the way that the textiles are also changing, you know, yeah. with the times and. You know how, you know, you have like poly blends now, you know, you right. didn't have that before. Yeah. Um, and so it's fun for me to work with like these different types of fabrics. But for me, it really was about being able to walk in your beauty and walk in your culture every day. And that was just who I'd become personally. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was just going to wear it a different way. So the first piece, that piece that's so popular, like the pomp, really is, there's a picture of me when I'm a baby. My mom is wearing like a similar tunic mm-hmm. with the matching pants. She's so chic. And then I'm like holding me as a baby. And I was just like, women love that. It's easy to wear. You can it's wear it flattering. to work. It's flattering. You can wear it. It's, it you can wear it to work. You can wear it to dinner you can wear it as a dress you can wear it with um leggings you know mm-hmm. you can wear it with jeans i mean like it's seasonless versatile. yeah you know that particular style um you can even wear it backwards and forwards which i do sometimes mm-hmm. like instead of the zipper in the back i would do the zipper in the front and i said and if i'm going to use i wanted it to be a sort of minimalist aesthetic approach to the garment construction because i really wanted the prints to speak for themselves right yeah you know i wanted that boldness and mm-hmm. so that you could feel beautiful in it and people really identify with that yeah. they just put it on and they feel pretty yeah, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. you know um and so i just followed my gut there mm-hmm. like i knew i'm like i'm just gonna do this and i'm gonna do like a small capsule collection and see how mm-hmm. it goes people loved it so then i kept making more you know and then i would like for a year I experimented with other styles but then now I've really figured out people really like this silhouette and so now we've come out with a new shift silhouette Mm -hmm. it has a bit of a bell sleeve um it has a belt an optional belt if you Mm -hmm. want to belt it you know if you don't want to belt it um but what I love about it is that it has no notions there are no buttons there are no zippers because that's my frustration with a lot of my vintage is that the notions go yeah and when we do use a zipper you know, I'm using like, you know, a denim zipper that's very heavy. Right. Because in all of my vintage denim, the zippers are still working. <laughs> so I'm thinking about not only creating like a wearable, beautiful garment, but I'm also thinking about this like as a piece of art. How do I make it sustainable? Like in 20 years, yeah. I want to still be living and you loved it and you went to all these like you lived in it maybe you just ran to the grocery store with your messy bun in it or you went to your 
daughter's graduation in it right. or you closed a deal in it but there was this dress you wore all the time and then you give it to your daughter i mean it's like diane von fustenberg's wrap dress i mean mm -hmm. how many stories do you have around that dress because it makes sense yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, it's know, practical despite yeah. um popular belief like yeah yeah, women like to shop, but we like to shop for things we're excited about. We don't want to be forced to shop because yeah. our clothes that we love got worn out. Got worn and out. And they don't work anymore. And, uh, and, and it's disposable and throw away. And yes. come on, nobody needs another garment. No. You know? And all. so if I, you're going to create garments, let's create something that's about quality and that has some, like, cultural meaning and significance about it. So... And your sourcing. Can you talk a little bit about your sourcing? Yeah. So, you know, Ankara now, I mean, we source from West Africa, mm -hmm. you know, but the majority of it is still like designed in the Netherlands, you mm -hmm. know, in West Africa, places like GTP, of course, are, you know, printing and designing, you know, in the continent, mm -hmm. but they're great pieces that are coming out of Europe and they're great Ankara that's coming out of India now. Mm -hmm. So I go where like the good quality is. Mm -hmm. And then I also do the majority of our production in the U.S. here in Seattle. Very cool. You know, because I feel like philanthropy in many ways begins at home and having worked with so many creatives who don't have opportunities, you know, it's important to support our local seamstresses. Yeah. Many of them are very knowledgeable. Yeah. And I wanted a handmade piece. You know, right. this isn't made by a machine. The majority of what we wear today, people really don't think about it, but it's made by a machine. Yeah, there's no human there's touch. There's no, like, human touch. All. Humans have touched this, and this is usually no more than, like, three or four. Yeah. I've touched it because I open everything, and I inspect the fabric. We steam it. We press it. We stack mm. it. We cut it. One lady sews the dress. And we touched a little bit on this before, but um, so you are married. Yes. And you've been married, you said, for 10 years. It will be 10 years August 1st. Congratulations. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and you have a daughter. Yep. And, well, and recently a dog. Yeah. Uh, so, no. <laughs> um, how have you, like, with your relationship, how mm -hmm. have you, you know, sort of had that communication of, like, you know, he works and then you work also. Yeah. Um, what sort of things have you have you guys developed to make that work for you so that you're also being present as parents? As parents. So we being in Seattle, I will say the environment here is very family friendly. In New York, we were working all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, we barely saw each other, but we weren't used to anything different right. until we left. I mean, even on the Sunday, you know, we spend quality time together as a family in the morning, go to church. And then my husband, you know, he's a former banker. He'd go to the office. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, that was our lives. So at least for the most part, we kind of have our weekends, you know, which is great. And so, um, and I, you know, have the weekday. And it's a lot because we don't, we have a babysitter who comes in twice a week. But it's not like we have any family who lives in this area. Right. And also, my daughter's gotten used to me being there. So she wants me to be the one to pick her up from school or, you know, which take her sweet, to her activities. Which that, is really, that may not last much longer. That may not last forever where they, she really, like, enjoys my company. Or will mm -hmm. even say, I want to spend more time with you. Although we have, like, a lovely sitter, you know, mm -hmm. who comes, like, twice a week from 4 to 8. And those are my days where, oh, my God, I can work through the evening or I can go on a date night with my husband and get right. stuff done. So you do have date nights. So we try to have date nights once a week on mm -hmm. that Tuesday night, you know, 
And then we also have family date night every Friday night. Oh, nice. And that's with like as family, like all together. Right. Um, and then we go to church like almost every Sunday. Mm-hmm. We do that together. And then um, we do have some activities on the weekends. Sometimes my daughter will have tutoring. Um, she now started, my husband runs marathons, so she's now started running with my husband oh, with his so coach. Fun. So they do their running thing together. Um, but during the week, you know, like today, I took her to her activity after school. I just found out that she's moved up a level in mm-hmm. ballet. So I already know in the fall, that's two nights a week. Mm-hmm. You know, she just moved up a level in her Northwest Girl Choir. So that's one night a week. I mean, the nights are busy. Yeah. And then on Sunday, I try to do the majority of cooking for the week. Because yeah. I do, if I wasn't doing what I do now, I would probably be a chef. I love, love to really? cook. Really? I did not know that about you. That's like my kind of... Who asked me? I think it was my therapist was like, what are your hobbies? Like, my, I'm living my hobbies. Right. Yeah. Like, I didn't know what to say. I was like, shopping, cooking. He was uh-huh. in hysterics. How long have you gotten therapy for? Oh, forever. I've been in and out of therapy. You know, I, re- I went to therapy. It was really after losing my father and my mother mm-hmm. at such a young age. Mm-hmm. And How old trying you? to get. Well, my father died. I was 24. Wow. And when my mother passed away, I was, I just turn 33 going on 34 yeah so it was you know it was like relatively young um and that mixed with having burnt the candle at both ends for Mm -hmm. so long with my work and then having so much family responsibility on me I just reached a level where like the panic attacks and anxiety got too much and I was like oh self-care but yeah. it was forced upon me because my body just said no more. Right. So I, I'm really committed to that. Like That's great. I do like heated vinyasa yoga at least five days a week. Good. You know, I That's go amazing. to my therapist every other week. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, how did I'm you, in church. How did you find a therapist week. when you moved? You just call around and yeah. people until you find someone you can like jive with. Do you have questions? Cause just because so, you've been doing it a while and so I'm yeah. so interested because most people I talk to have only been in therapy for a few years. So I'm always really interested oh. in people been going for a while. Like how they vet it. Is it just Yeah, a I feeling? take breaks. Okay. You take like if I'm going through some type of crisis or in my body, if my body is saying, oh, Erica, we have a lot of anxiety and panic because we've just been like getting stuff done and it's unresolved. Mm-hmm. Then I need to, I need someone to talk to, obviously. Yeah. So, you know, I'll go. And then like I told my therapist, I'm like, oh, June's going to be really busy and July. I can't make it. You know yeah, what I mean? Definitely. And, but I'll check in and let you know that I'm okay. So I just, as I need it, but mm-hmm. I have to take care of myself. It's really important. Because even, I mean, my grandmother was alive. She told me, she's like, oh, Erica, you know, you have this husband now and you have this child. And, you know, I was like 35 when it dawned on me, oh, maybe I want to get married and have a family. Oh, it was really? only after my <laughs> mother passed away. It was like this space wow. opened up for more love. And I remember I was very intentional about it. And, you know, and I love my little family and I'm so happy with it. But then there was still this part of me that just, you know, still wanted to work really hard. And my grandmother was like, you can do everything, but doing it all at the same time at this, with this intensity. Yeah. She's like, fall thrown on all those. She's like, and if you fall out, you know, it's going to be another woman taking care of your husband and child. (laughs) Well, that's a very real perspective. I tell that's really real. Yeah. I mean, because there are women who have so much stress 
who don't have, you know, either, you know, the resources or the time, you know, to really take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, it's true. Young women who are married are having, you know, heart attacks and strokes. Yeah. Because the world in general has just become more stressful. Like, forget Absolutely. your, like, everyday experience. Just the world around you. Yeah. You know, and that influences us. So I just have taken, and I'm glad that, that those sort of lifestyles, mm-hmm. particularly in the Pacific Northwest space, is really respected. Absolutely. You need to take Which care is, of yourself. Yeah. It's unique because that is coming from Los Angeles. That is not, I mean, perhaps now with that being more in like the mainstream conversation of self-care yeah. that people even know what that means. And people yeah. aren't like, you know, the fact that now people don't think or aren't as like quick to say that you're being selfish by taking by time taking for yourself. By taking wellness. Yeah. Right. And you know, what is it still? Yeah. It's mental health awareness month. Mm-hmm. What did I read? It was this thing on Instagram. That's why I love. It was like, it was like bad bitch on antidepressants. <laughs> I was like, oh my god! And it was like, this artist created it like a black exploitation um, film poster. Mm-hmm. And it was this like beautiful woman, you know. Um, it was something about anxiety has no chance here. I just so loved it. I love. I was like, it's so great. It's so good. You know, don't let anybody shame you into not taking care of yourself. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and as black women, we don't do this. Mm-hmm. I mean, my mother mm-hmm. died from heart disease. And on her side of family, there was no thing. She died from a stressful life. Yeah. Stress killed her. Absolutely. You know, and so I'm very mindful, like, of, of, of that, Um, you know. And you have to be selfish, you know. Well, there's a difference between being selfish mm-hmm. and self-centered. Yeah, it and is. And you have to be selfish, and that does not mean that you're being yeah. self-centered. And I will tell my daughter, this mommy, mommy, because these kids today are very demanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, even tonight, you know, she was calling me when we started. I'm like, Daddy will be home in five minutes, and he will deal with you. Oh, but, you know, right. and then it's, the old me probably would have said, oh, give me five, ten minutes. Right. No. You, they, she has to learn my boundaries too. Well, because that's how she'll learn to have boundaries. For boundaries herself. for herself. Or when I'm tired, I'm tired. Yeah, like time for mommy to go to work. Or I'll just say, mommy's tired, and right. I really need. And that's a to full take sentence. A break. Yeah, mommy's tired. <laughs> I need to take a break. Or on Sundays when I've given so much, mm-hmm. or I've cooked big, I'm like, mommy needs to go take a nap. Like I, I need yeah. that. You know. So which seeing someone do that is really important because it it's taken me a up until the last few years to go like, oh, when you feel like you need to take a nap and you have the flexibility in your life to be able to take a nap, you don't need to power through that hour and a half that you're exhausted. Take the so nap dumb. and you'll be more productive. I'm telling you, I powered through that space mm-hmm. for so long and then my body just rebelled against yeah. me. And if I, and I get close to it sometimes mm-hmm. and then I have to like pay attention and, you right. know, and, and listen because the work that I do is more physically demanding. I'm moving all day. Yeah. It was very different from when I was sitting at a desk all day. And it's and it, you're an entrepreneur and yeah. so you really you have to keep all it's all cylinders moving. all the time. Totally. But then even with my team, I'm getting better at saying no. Like mm-hmm. if it's ten o'clock at night and I know I'm not thinking straight and all I wanna do is like read and settle down, then that's what I do. Right. And they may need something and I'm like, Look, I have to give it to you when I'm just like woke and a little and when I'm rested. Because yeah. I'm not going to be able to put out quality work when I'm fatigued. Yeah. And that's and that's been the freedom and one of the blessings of running my own company and being able to build it slowly at my mm-hmm. own pace. 
you know, it's stressful because I bootstrapped it myself, you know, mm -hmm. doing everything yourself, of course, can be overwhelming. But for me, at this point in my life of where I am, that's what has worked for me. Yeah. Like I had to build it to accommodate my lifestyle at my pace, right. not the other way around. Yeah. You know, I love that. I'm, I mean, but I'm lucky to be able to do that because then I was able to like, you know, still curate, you know, and right. and have that, you know, to be able to contribute to the household and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was still like managing multiple hustles, but, you know, it provided me with the flexibility to drop my daughter off in the morning to go to yoga class, to work. When I drop her off at ballet, then I'm crunching in the car. I just work in those pockets and whenever yeah. I can um, and I'm the type of person who knows how to do that. Like, mm -hmm. not everybody can like yeah, it's do not that. everyone's toolbox. And it's not, not into, yeah, there's some people like need to be at the desk. I can like work anywhere. Same. And I yeah. kind of like working on the go. Me too. You it's, know, honestly, I find it a little bit more. I'm a little bit more um, intentional about what I'm doing. Yeah. If I'm at home or at a desk or whatever, it's very easy. Maybe it's me not liking rules. I don't mm -hmm. know what it is, mm -hmm. but it's something about being on the go that I find to be a little bit more like, oh, I, I'm on a time crunch because I only have an hour. I only have this, and I need to get back, you know, and writing stuff down. Right. So, um, I become very good at that. And where I am in my life right now is working. I mean. I did, you know, do an intensive to see what the next three to five years of the ULA company would look like. Mm -hmm. But even I'm very what intentional. What do you mean an intensive? Like, um, what is it called? An accelerator, not an intensive. An intensive would be something you did in academia. <laughs> you know? Well, no, I, I mean. I'm still, I, like, learning business talk. Well, I mean, it's just like a shift. In, it's like, it's like a shift. Yeah. yeah, I did my, like business certificate program at the University of Washington and then they have these like mini accelerators and does you that know, mean for you sit down so an accelerator means that you sit down and talk about like you sit what... down and talk about where you've been what you've done you okay. give them your QuickBooks your marketing everything you've done they work on it and then they give you you know a deck as well as a report on how to like grow your business okay you know and then you can stay in the program and once you finish those then you can like go to the next level but, you know, for people like me, if your background hasn't been in finance and business and you're learning as you build, you know, yeah. your company, that's an invaluable resource. I find this city to be so um, supportive that way. It's amazing. I've it's yeah. been really I didn't know that that was here when I moved here and yeah. finding that support has been. Neither did I. I'm I would have never started the Ula company had I stayed in New York. I really? tell you that. It was only because it was here. And then also with my husband, there was also the possibility and still is or the potentiality that we may move again, mm -hmm. you know. And mm -hmm. I can't, working in art and design, I can't redefine, you know, my career at every port. Yeah. I needed something of my own that I built that could really kind of be done from anywhere. anywhere. Totally. Yeah. So that actually, I do have one more question about relationship things before mm -hmm. I ask the last question. Mm -hmm. So um, you've been together for 10 years, mm -hmm. or you've been together long. You've been married for 10 years. We've been married for 10 years, and I guess we've been there for 12 years. Oh, my God. It feels so weird to even say so that. So how do you, because mm -hmm. you're having date nights on a weekly basis, and you see each other regularly, you know, what do you, like, how do you find things to talk about so that your conversation isn't logistics, you know? Because so many times I'm around couples, and if you have a kid, it's a lot of, like, logistics. Like, how do you stay... Well, I, I just really like my husband. I mean, so it's opposite of track, right? And so <laughs> I do. I like spending time with my going on date night. And then when you're in a different environment, the 
dynamic takes on a different tenor. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? It's more for me like when you were like dating. You know what I mean? Right. And um, you know, we were at Spadasi last week, and it was like a, his mom was in town. I'm like, we should do day night. Because she's going to be here with Luba. We should just do it. So yeah. it was so fun. We were able to go. We sat at the bar. And then you start talking about all this stuff that you didn't even know you wanted to talk about. Uh-huh. It's just, and it some of it's logistics, but a lot of it isn't. It's right. just like your date. It's like if you go out on a, like you go out on a date. You just start talking about yourself and things you I like and things. never go on dates. Oh, you have to go on some dates then. Yeah. <laughs> But I remember, you know what I mean? It's like when we were like courting, yeah. you know, you're just talking about well, that's good stuff. Because I really, you know, yeah. sometimes um, Gloria Stenham has this quote that mm. really stuck with me because it helped me sort of wrap my head around why I felt sort of suffocated by the idea of a relationship. Yeah. And she said that when you're you're raised to think that like getting married and having kids is the greatest thing you'll ever do with your life, it mm. makes uh, marriage feel a lot like death mm. because that's like the end. Whoa. <laughs> you know? Wow. And oh I was God. like, which... It's kind yeah. of like I've always, I've always um, approached relationships in the wrong way for sure. Where I've gone like, okay, well, I'm in a relationship now. I guess my fun is over. Oh yeah. Which, oh. No wonder why they haven't worked no out. No wonder. I know. <laughs> I. Yeah, I was. It's not a mystery. I mean, I was in relationships before that, but it's uh-huh. interesting. I was not thinking about marriage and even long-term well, relationships. Have I. Yeah. It. Re- I tell you, it was when my mother passed because I was in New York. Mm. I was being art girl. You know, I was like that girl, just living yeah. it up and doing what you're supposed to do. And I would think about kids and like, oh, yeah, I'll get to that eventually. Which is exactly You know, but it wasn't yeah. something I was intentional about mm-hmm. until that moment. And so I was, and then I was ready for it. Yeah. You know, I knew who I was. I'd been through so much. You know, yeah. I'd had, you know, run the gamut of relationships, both good and not so good. So... I knew what type of partner I needed. There were just a lot of things. I was mature enough to mm-hmm. decide. I mean, yeah, I was ready. So for me, it's, I mean, you know, you have to work at your marriage, of course, but I was so ready for it that, yeah. you know what I mean? I don't, I can't say that I feel suffocated. I mean, of course, sometimes well, no, you your don't. partner. That's why I'm asking you. Yeah, like, gets on you... your nerves. <laughs> sometimes your partner gets on your nerves. You do, you have those moments. Well, yeah. You get irritable because you're just, ugh. Yeah, well, just, because you know, it's going to happen with anyone And that's with you. anyone, you know. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's your family. Yeah. But you do. And then I have these, like, older friends. They kill me. Always asking me about, you know. And I don't think. And some of them are, like, some of them in a relationship. Some of them are divorced. Some of them aren't even in a relationship. But they have really good advice. And they mm. tease me. Like yeah. what? You know, are you keeping that man satisfied? Like things like that <laughs> that are totally not womanist related. Right. And then giving me instructions on how to do it and what to wear and all these like things. Which that, are hysterical. Which are freaking like. hysterical. Like coming from 75 and 80 year old women. But I listen to that. And then I go and tell my friends and they love it. Let me yeah. tell you, this advice works. So <laughs> the old school advice that you get, I tell my friends and they love it. They're like, what have your ladies told you? And I'm like, well. <laughs> and it's just like so much fun, that sort of like mother knowledge, you know, yeah. passed pass down. Um, I just I just love that. So, yeah. And, you know, also when me and Joe got married, you know, 
being financially stable is also a big part of it too because I think a lot of reasons so many couples who are young have so much stress a lot of it is financial stress yeah and financial worries right I mean I can do like a family in I mean I remember being a child within within that and it Mm -hmm. causes stress so we were just at different places you know where we could be like fully present yeah. Um, and fully intentional because a lot of that career stuff and, you know, the financial strifes that you go through in your 20s and 30s um, were kind of like pretty much behind us. Um, but then, you know, you have other stuff. And then I just feel like I've gone through so much. Like I feel, you know, losing my parents and then like even my grandmother and my great grandmother, I feel like I've come into this to this space of potentiality, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. And maybe that's why I feel like so young in the inside. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, I'm getting old. And I feel like, oh, you know, I'm hopefully entering a space where there isn't so much loss. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and there's more like celebration, you know, so I've right. become like almost like Auntie Mame, like live, live, live. Like, I really <laughs> do. I love that film. I mean, that's I feel beautiful. like I'm always like live, live, live. Tomorrow isn't promised. Today. Yeah. You no, know, like you know, delay gratification for me. Totally. Now. My, my grandma was, has always been that way. Yeah. And I love that about her. And yeah. she would always tell me, you're not old until you stop running out of ideas. Yeah. And it's true. And I feel that way, like about almost everything. Yeah. Like there's, um, there's an intensity, you know, that I bring, yeah. bring to it, but it's only because of what my, you know, what my experiences right. have, have been. So I'm just grateful to have this space. You know, yeah. um, where I can like even feel that way. Right. Without yeah. feeling guilty. Totally. Yeah. That's huge. That's mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. Um, so the last question I ask everybody mm-hmm. is what would you want to hear a future episode about like the behind the scenes of? Oh, and it could be like anything. Anything. You know, so what I'm really interested in as an entrepreneur is this world of influencers. Mm. Like I'm trying, I have a new um, a marketing director who is still in college you know very hardworking, very and it's like she's always these influencers and I don't and I don't get it like I don't get I know I sound really old here but I really don't get how someone who like may have a flair or feel for fashion but not understand the breadth and depth of it have all these people following them and telling them mm-hmm. what to wear. Like it's so different from the fashion world. And that and I grew your up world in. of academics. And right? of my world of academics. Like I am so curious yeah. about this. I mean, I am flabbergasted. You I really, really <laughs> am. And I like to, and the girls and one of them, like we're working with them now and they explain to me, oh, if we post this dress, you post two posts, I post two posts. We'll do a giveaway, and clearly it works. Like, clearly this works. Right. But that whole culture... It is fascinating to me. I find it fascinating. Well, it's also tricky when I, I would venture to say you and I are not necessarily uh, the the target demographic of somebody who's easily influenced. Yeah, that we're, could be true, too. Yeah. We're both sponges, but yeah. I am not one to go like, oh... I saw this celebrity or this person, and I'm gonna it, and click through, it. and I want it. Oh yeah. Well, I just no. it's really I want it. I got it. I mean, I just right. And how does that work? And who? Why are these young people so impressionable? That is what I find. That is what I don't get it. 
And but you know, me. I think that people were always that impressionable because I think about, mm-hmm. you know, the sort of uh, like what was cool when we were younger and how people went from like, oh, I'm going to find a way to make that or do that or find mm-hmm. something similar to like, oh, I'm going to get that exact thing. And I think that yeah. has a lot to do, and I have a lot of theories about it, but a lot mm-hmm. about like the rise of just consumerism as we know it and the yeah. way like department stores and malls. And, and all that. of this have changed. I'm yes. fast. I'm fascinated by it. And as a, you know, and as a result, you know, because as a curator and as an academic, you're studying it from a different lens. Yeah. And I was in the school of art and design. I wasn't like in the school like of marketing, you know? Right. But I'm beginning to think more, obviously, because I have a business. At the end of the day, I got to sell these dresses. Yeah. And this has to even do with my story. Some of the feedback I got was like, well, Erica, you need to tell your story. Because at least you have one, and it's right. unique. You're not just somebody making clothes to make clothes. Because that's a lot of people yeah. who are like, oh, I know somebody with a relationship with this vendor. Here's a business it's opportunity. A bit, yeah. Or you have a legitimate story. And this, and so yeah. I haven't even done the best job at like telling my own story. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. Why am I uncomfortable with that? Because at the end of the day, I am a thespian. It's right. You know what I mean? I get it. What it means to like put yourself like yeah. out there. Um, that's that very whole, different though being emotionally yeah. vulnerable and putting yourself out there is a very different thing than sharing the details about your actual story well yeah in the branding of me and yeah. even finding the time mm-hmm. to well, write yeah. these I mean, posts good, good <laughs> yeah I mean that's the difficult and part. it has to be your voice no one else can do it for you mm-hmm. it has I just I'm fascinated I, because I'm in the middle of it right and I still, like, I get it, and, I, and I'm doing some of it, but I still don't fully, like, yeah. understand. Then I need to find, like, a consumer, like, research for, like, I want to know, because like, I'm interested in, like, the psychology of it. Me too, and the psychology and the social science of yes, it. Yes, agreed. Like, if I were to be writing, like, you know, my master's again, I would be writing about that. Absolutely. Because I think that that is fascinating to me. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm with you on that. Thank you so much for being on. This was oh, so fun. You're welcome. Thank I you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of BTS Podcast. You can follow BTS Podcast across social at, at BTS the Podcast. Feel free to find me at, at Lene Cook. And of course, most importantly, please do find Erica Dahlia Masakoy across social media and her company, The Ula Company. You can find her at, at Erica Dahlia on Instagram and Twitter. You can find The Ula Company at, at The Ula Company across social platforms. Their clothing is great. Please do look it up. They make such gorgeous pieces. And Erica is truly like somebody that I aspire to be like, um, I would say when I grow up, but I guess technically I am grown. So thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. Please do subscribe, rate and review, and let me know if you have anything that you would like to hear the behind the scenes of.